This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Episode 24 Welcome to the delayed second half of our last Alondronon episode, since I cut the last one short to make room for Night Train's short story. Fair warning, if the last one was rough for you, it gets a whole lot crazier in this episode. So, a quick heads up for sensitive listeners, particularly those under the age of 13 or 14. There is heavy violence ahead. Part 4 The Siege of Enigma Station 1. Northeast of the tower city of Chryseis, on the Alondra-named continent of Shartan, eight four-wheel drive earthen vehicles, all full to capacity with human survivors of the Enigma, rolled across the barren landscape of the Deadlands in a line. They overtook a hill and began their descent toward the wreckage that the Enigma discharged when Jonathan Tabith crash-landed the spacecraft. Chance Trelion stood up from the passenger seat of one of the four-wheelers with a pair of binoculars up to his green eyes. He scanned the wreckage while they still had the height advantage. He saw the large compartment that had been Weapons Division C in the distance. It was covered with the Fahrenheit bastards that Emilio, their Alondron translator, had mentioned. Chance directed the driver toward the trashed and scattered facility at the base of the hill, warning the other passengers to be ready to fire. They rolled up to the facility to have the Fahrenheits emerge from within like ants to a disturbance on the surface. The four-wheelers came to a halt. Everyone ejected the vehicles with their weapons at the ready. They dropped into a formation line and the air filled with the constant patter of exploding gunpowder and bullets. They gunned and reloaded and gunned some more. The distorted, mask-like faces of the creatures torqued and erupted in purple blood and amber bone. The survivors of the Enigma mowed the Fahrenheits down as they advanced on the facility with their semi-automatic rifles and shotguns. Once inside, the Fahrenheits had such limited melee access that the humans didn't have any problem taking them down. They had the place cleared in ten minutes, all the weaponry to themselves. No casualties, said Chance. See, if you listen to me, you'll never go wrong. Goose snickered. If we listened to you all the time, we'd never have liberated the Enigma from these bastards. Enigma Station is going to be our best line of defense. Enigma Station is a giant sitting duck. Establishing a human base is your first mistake, and it may be your last, Chance said, perusing the ammunition cabinets. Yeah, yeah, everyone knows how you feel about the Alondrons. We'll see how they feel when we become a superpower. Guys, we have company, Chuck Staley said. He was the youngest member of their group. Alondrons on horseback. They followed us and turned around when we saw them. What should we do? Catch them and bring them back here, Chance said. Chuck hurried back the way they came. What do you plan to do after that? Emilio entered the room. He had short black hair and dark brown eyes. What they would do to us if we followed a troop of theirs, Chance said. Don't kill them. They're just following orders. You might avoid bad ties with Chryseus if they tell their superiors we release them. Chryseus made bad ties when they didn't spare our people. Chance picked up a small nuclear device that was still active. This might come in handy. He clipped it to his backpack. Hey, Chance! said Nathan Burks, a man with short blonde hair and bright green eyes. You might want to come take a look at this. Chuck jumped into the four-wheeler next to Remus, a man in his mid-thirties with a big black beard and mutton chops. 
The afternoon sun descending toward the horizon in the west glared off the thick black sunglasses covering his brown eyes as he sucked on the end of a thin cigarillo. It's your lucky day, Remus, Chuck said, starting up the vehicle. Remus lifted his mechanical right hand to hold onto the titanium frame of the vehicle. They fired forward. The shocks absorbed the rocks and brush as they bounded over the hill and aimed for the two figures galloping toward the forest line preceding the twisted wood of the Deadlands. They caught the Alondrons on horseback in a matter of minutes. As Chuck pulled up close to the riders, Remus stood up while holding onto the vehicle. Chuck pulled closer. The Alondron nearest to them swore. Remus planted his fist in the rider's side and grabbed hold of his cloak. Swinging him into the back seat of the four-wheeler, Remus punched out the man and watched the other rider disappear behind the tree line. Remus grabbed hold of the rifle from the holster beneath the passenger dashboard, directed the nozzle toward the flash of green fabric beyond the passing trees, and fired. There was a splay of red, and the fabric fell away from the brown and white color of the horses as it galloped out of sight of the field. Chuck pulled the vehicle to a halt near the trees. Stay here, barked Remus. He got out and entered the cool air of the forest. The Alondron man was crawling toward a rock, preceding a narrow creek. Remus picked him up by the back of his cloak and took hold of his neck. Surveying him, he saw that his shot had tagged him in the shoulder. The man pleaded in Alondron for Remus to spare his life. Remus drew the knife at his hip and was about to cut his throat when an odd feeling crept through him. He looked around the clearing, hearing only the gentle trickle of the stream beneath the yammer of his prey. What's the hold up? Chuck asked, approaching from behind. That's when Remus saw them, an incalculable number of Chrysia soldiers in the trees beyond the creek. It was already too late. He turned to Chuck. Run! Tell the others! Run! He tried to run, but he didn't even get one foot in front of the other before he felt at least six arrows throughout his backside. He fell to his knees, watching Chuck narrowly avoid the swarm of arrows barraging from the hill behind him. Chuck ran as fast as he could. When he emerged from the tree line, their prisoner was awake and directing his crossbow right at him from the back of the four-wheeler. Chuck dodged the bolt and tackled the soldier in the back of the four-wheeler, punching him across the face. Chuck tossed the crossbow over the edge of the vehicle and clambered into the driver's seat. He kicked the four-wheeler into gear and made for the weapons facility. What the hell is it? Nathan Burks asked Chance, directing the beam of his flashlight into the hole burrowed into the earth at the back of the facility. Some kind of Fahrenheit hidey hole. Emilio, do you know anything about this? Chance asked. Emilio peered at the formation. I don't know very much about the Fahrenheits, but I've never seen anything like this before. Great, looks like we get to figure it out, Chance said, ducking to enter the tunnel. He clicked on the flashlight at the end of his gun and moved forward quickly with the descending path until it filtered out onto a balcony overlooking a huge underground city. What struck a chord of horror with Chance was the millions of Fahrenheits filling every square inch of the city. They moved like ants, a sea of them churning in different miraculously coordinated paths, their motions causing a dull roar throughout the cavern. Holy crap, Nathan whispered. How are there so many left? They were supposed to have been wiped out decades ago, Emilio said. Let's get out of here, Chance ordered. The three hurried back the way they came. Chance paused and grabbed the device he'd picked up earlier. He set it for five minutes and tossed it over the ledge where it fell fifty feet and landed on what had been part of an elaborate aqueduct system. It then cartwheeled down the duct and fell into an ancient well that channeled deep into the recesses of a chamber that connected to the Volian Sea to the north. It then landed between a set of boulders beneath the crucial shelf supporting much of the plate of earth above. Chance, Emilio, and Nathan hurried to the surface. All right, people, grab what you need. We have to be on our way out of here in two minutes. 
Chance said. He loaded his pack with ammo boxes, two repair kits, and a few grenades. Everyone else hurriedly grabbed all the good equipment and started leaving. On his way out the door, he grabbed a combat shotgun and an extra crate of shells. The seven remaining four-wheelers filled with people and they started riding away from the facility. They were about 200 yards away when the detonation went off. The facility was disintegrated as a tower of fire engulfed the area. The earth began to rumble beneath them. Geysers of water flooded across the valley from giant cracks in the crust. Chance peered over his shoulder from the passenger seat. The sky went ruby red as a result of the firestorm. Behind them, a massive angle of earth was melting into the Volian Sea. Jesus, probably shouldn't have done that so close to the Enigma. You're some kind of stupid, right? Boxer said as he manned the wheel. He was a burly man with a red bandana wrapped around his bald dome. His eyes were hazel and he had a tattoo of a vicious rabbit on his arm. Pest control, my good man. Wise man once told me that you have to get to the root of a problem, Chance said. I don't think that applies when you nuke part of the continent off. Where I'm from, that's called overkill. Let's get back to Enigma Station. I'd like to get back to meet him early tomorrow morning. Why? You got a hot date in that shit sty of a flea market? One does not boast when others are not so fortunate, boxer, Chance said. Prince Jorar Crisius stood on the hill with General Peptus and Second Major Lucan. They watched through a break in the trees, the thundering force of the humans and their machines, the dangerous technology they brought with them. They did not know or understand the power they had contained. It was only a matter of time before their force affected and ruined everything the Alondrons held dear. Send for the full army, Jorar said to Lucan, eyeing the civilization that had matured within the city of Drogon that had not been there prior. Are you certain that's a good idea? Peptas asked. Look at what they're capable of doing, he said, indicating the plate of earth that sank into the sea, sending a huge wave outward to the east. What if they did that to one of our cities, to Sharasa or Narsus? There'd be no survivors. We cannot abide while this threat incubates. Now go, and be ready to storm on my command. Yes, lord. Lucan nodded and gigged his horse into motion. It was a long ride back to Crisius. 2. Jonathan made for the Virago in the middle of the Sherezan slush pit. Those that didn't get out of his way, he put down. One man tried to jump onto Jonathan from an overhead cliff, but Jonathan grabbed him by the wrist connected to a hand clutching a small makeshift shiv and broke his arm. He left the scraggly, dirty man to his fate on the side of the road, knowing that with a broken arm he had no chance of survival. The closer he got to the Virago, the more sophisticated the weaponry in the hands of the prisoners. Jonathan sidestepped a large club wrapped with wire, painted with blood, and filled with chunks of bone. He kicked the owner so hard that he hit the wall and dropped the club only to be ransacked by three hungry inmates. It was different being here instead of in the previous slush pit, even though almost everything was the same. Jonathan had learned to take care of himself. He felt safer here than he did out in the forest surrounded by thieves. There was no false sense of security of safety. He met a clearing between a path leading to a dilapidated building on his right and the path ahead that meandered to the Virago Ring. A group of prisoners emerged from the slabs of stone surrounding the intersection. Several carried pieced-together spears, while many held rocks or cudgels of sorts. They closed in, smelling of feces and urine. As they drove in on him, Jonathan wiped them out. He saw his attackers the way a fly sees a moving threat, slow and manageable. Everything Balor had taught him bubbled to the surface. Spears filled his vision, but he broke the ends and used them to end the lives of their owners. 
When he caught his bearings, he saw eleven men lying mortally wounded on the ground around him. Jonathan continued on. Meyer Winshock, the executor of Duke Farnham Dartus's Hall of Champions, stood on the balcony overlooking the great Cherizan ring, the Defringo, as it was known for witnessing the rise and fall of champions. He wore a royal blue tunic sash and dastar. He had a brown mustache and beard, and his eyes were a deep blue. Every off-season he scouted for their house's new champion. The Dartus family had witnessed seventeen champions over the last fifteen years, six of which had risen to power beneath Meyer's training. He made it his business to seek out the most capable intermediate winner and take them back to Dardis where he would train them to face the real champions. He watched Jorez the Scorpion decapitate Yeats the Striker and maintain his title throughout the next four matches. That was a good sign. He saw other recruiters and executors in the audience as well. Ragul of Cherry, Harold Rowe of Chryseus, Jemaine Single of Cathra. They were all known rivals, and each had their own set of complex techniques to teach the survivors. Meyer decided to wait before beginning the bid for Jorge's. The day had only just begun, and who knew what kind of trophies lay in wait for him. Jonathan grabbed a man's fist and threw him over the ledge of a narrow, dilapidated stone bridge leading to the Virago Ring. There were other men, but most of them backed off after seeing Jonathan put each foe down without trouble. The ones that didn't were ended. A large gate guarded the way beyond the end of the bridge. He stood before the wall at the end, perusing the height of the formation. Virago doesn't begin for another hour, Polari's voice carried from behind him. Jonathan turned around and saw him standing there, his long strawberry blonde hair tied into a ponytail. He had the largest sword Jonathan had ever seen in real life propped on his shoulder. May as well wait for a bit. You made the biggest mistake of your life coming here, Jonathan said. After what you did to me this morning, I should pull you apart bone by bone, starting with the ones that won't kill you. Polari grinned. His blue eyes never left Jonathan's. Sounds like fun, but let's see just how much you really want it. His forearm flexed as he raised the massive sword over his head. A pair of hands wrapped around Jonathan's throat. Jonathan grabbed the arms of his attacker and slammed him so hard into the ground in front of him that the man's shoulders dislocated from their sockets. More men came at him from the left and right. Jonathan fought his way through a swarm of vile, filthy, clawing fingers. He kicked the legs out of those in his way, throwing his fists into the bony ribs of decrepit prisoners. Jonathan kicked one of the men in the chest so hard that it stopped his heart. He used one of his assailants to block a set of knives while breaking a man's teeth on the stone bridge with the other. He used their own weapons against them and broke them until it was only Polari standing at the end of the bridge. He looked displeased by Jonathan's survival. Jonathan was covered in blood and sweat, stained with oily black from the grime and muck that these peasants lived in. He made for Polari, eyes narrowed with determination. He saw no red in his vision now. There was no other taking hold. It was all him, his drive to feel this man's life tapering out between his fingers, to feel Polari's blood running down his arms. Jonathan charged. Polari swung his blade, missing Jonathan who put his fist into Polari's solar plexus. His sword fell from his fingers and clattered to the ground before it toppled over the ledge behind him. Jonathan brought the point of his elbow down hard, shattering Polari's thigh, knee, and calf, bringing him to a bow. Jonathan grabbed Polari's right arm as his left pounded Jonathan in the back repeatedly. Jonathan planted his knee in Polari's bicep and pulled, breaking Polari's arm in six different places. Polari howled in agony until Jonathan punched him in the face. 
Blood and teeth fell from his lips as Jonathan broke his other arm. He threw Polari's broken body off the ledge of the bridge. Polari splashed face down in the black river below and made no attempt to rise. At least one hundred prisoners and inmates stood at the other end of the bridge, staring in horror at Jonathan. Jonathan stared right back at them, needing no words to convey that he was not a force to be reckoned with. He turned as the gate behind him opened and entered. Lady Andra Winray sat on the high royal box overlooking the Defringo. She had long black hair flowing over the back of her chair. Her lavender eyes rolled into the back of her head as she tipped her head back, smiling. Her fingers ruffled the dark hair and neck of Chesner, her Catharian-born manservant, as he pleasured her with his tongue beneath her gown. The crowd cheered from the stands below. Andra grew bored. She tapped Chesner on the neck and pushed him back. Chesner sat in the seat next door and wiped his lips with a moist towel as Andra looked out at the crowd. Would someone please explain to me why that buffoon is dancing down there? Horaz the Scorpion. He's from Cathra. I knew his eldest brother when he was a child, Chesner said. It would be gratifying to see him trampled or maimed in some way. There was a knock at the door to her box. Andra hiked up her undergarments and dressed her robe as Chesner answered. It was Freed, her middle son. He had his mother's brown hair and his father's green eyes. He wore a fancy tunic and black leggings tucked into finely tailored boots. The sword at his hips swayed as he entered. I placed the bet on Garrison as you asked, mother. Wonderful. Chesner, she barked. Have the waiter bring Freed and I a platter of ham and fruit, if you would be so kind, and fetch me a tall Geneve Sarton. Freed sat on the side of her opposite to Chesner's seat and peered over the balcony to the ongoing games below. Chesner brought the platter and drink for Andra. He sat down and watched as Horez danced on the sidelines. He laughed as Horez went from buffoon to serious fighter and slaughtered his competition. Freed looked from Chesner to the field. Mom says I'm not allowed to compete in the games. Of course not. No one would be down there if they had a choice, Chesner said. I would be. I'd love to let my blade drink the life of another, said Freed. Chesner glanced from Freed to his mother who was giving him a look of disgust, urging him to make it right. Chesner cleared his throat. Being up here and being down there are two very different things. To be down there would be to deny all that your mother has worked for, to make sure your life is comfortable and without violent confrontation. Freed sneered the way children do when they haven't the bearings to understand the gift of wealth that they are given at birth. To live under royalty, at peace, with a promise that no matter how dangerous the world becomes, peace will never become forfeit. The idea that Freed would throw it all away for what others must know as servitude is simple ignorance. Even Chesner was in servitude to Freed's mother, but Freed had always been spoiled. I want to head an army. I want to slay giant monsters like the champions and marry the princess of Narsus. Andra rolled her eyes. If only they could pin down that girl. Rumor has it she goes missing every other night, turns up the next morning with a hangover. Despicable. Freed scoffed. She'd not do that if I were her husband. I'd lock her away and have her guarded day and night. I'd let her out to go to the bathroom once a day, and then it would be back to her room. The idea was so childishly ignorant that neither Chesner nor Andra thought it necessary to correct the twisted reality the boy had concocted. To their own ignorance, the suggestions Freed made were not mere fabrications. He genuinely believed these things were possible, and that the world could bend and accommodate to his will. Did you ever fight in the games, Chesner? Freed asked him. For a period in Cathra, 
Your mother bought me before Tertallus, the maimer, could rearrange my face. Is that true? Freed asked. No, I was across the street when Chesner, who had escaped from the arena in peasant's clothing, begged me to buy him so that he could avoid an upcoming fight. I had recently discovered my maidservant sleeping with your father, so I poked her jugular and made him watch her bleed to death all over the bed they fornicated upon. She glared at the field, watching Juarez march up and down the sidelines as another fight went on. She blinked and took a deep breath, gathering herself. If you two will excuse me, I will return momentarily. Andra stood up and left the royal box. Chesner and Freed continued watching the games placidly, mesmerized by the continual onslaught on the field below. 3. When Chuck woke up, he was lying in a field of fire. He was covered in flame, but still alive somehow. His flesh burned as he hobbled to his feet. The four-wheeler was a jumbled heap of metal lying next to the charred remnants of a tree. The weapons facility that had been far ahead, last he remembered, was now a boiling lake at the bottom of the hill. Something had gone wrong. To their great misfortune, things had been going wrong since the Enigma. When he turned around, a sense of horror iced through him. From the trees at the top of the hill leading to the southwest, a wave of Alondron men on horseback surged down the tree line. The sun of the morning lights at the gold and yellow colors of Crisius ablaze. They carried torches and held their blades up high. Reaching for his communicator, he realized that everything had burned off him. He was just a corpse on fire, awake to watch the death about to unfold upon his people. At the peak to the north, Enigma Station lay against the lavender-blue, star-studded morning sky. A small group of survivors were within the walls of what the Alondra natives called Drogon's Fort. The wave became a full-blown tsunami. Across the landscape, within Chuck's vision, he saw more army than field. There were barely a thousand people living in Enigma Station. This was an army of 50,000 men at least. The army passed into the walls of Drogon's Fort with ease. Smoke filled the sky above the city as the Alondron army ravaged one of the last remaining beacons of hope for humankind. People on horseback attempted to flee. Some of them got away by following the coastline before the Alondron soldiers could head them off. Others were overtaken by the current of Alondron soldiers. As the fire spread, the generators began to erupt throughout the city, killing people on both sides of the attack. Chuck heard them as pops. The rest was soundless due to the distance. So many were being murdered, so many taken. The women who weren't executed for fighting back and the ones who survived the wrath of the soldiers throughout the next few days until they reached Crisius would be sold as slaves. The men were doomed to die in the great gladiator battles where even if they survived, they would fight until the end of their lives. That's all the Alondrons did with their prisoners. It took perhaps 30 minutes for the city of Enigma Station to fall. Considering their technological advancements, it seemed like they would have survived longer, but they were scientists. Their knowledge of combat was minimal at best. Even if they had received prior knowledge of the attack, the Alondrons and their numbers would have made everything they had obsolete. Two falcons and ten hawks jetted from the flight dock of the Enigma and launched in different directions. Most of the city was on fire when the Alondrons of Crisius declared the battle a success and began filing out of Enigma Station and Drogon's Fort with their prisoners. Chuck couldn't believe what he was seeing. Men and women he had known throughout the Academy on Earth and Pluto Station were shoved into cages or threaded together by chains. Their lives were over. Everything they knew and had been taught no longer applied. If the Alondrons said their world was flat, no one would be at liberty to argue. That's how far back they were going a pre-Galileo world with no promise of renaissance in sight.
Joror Chrysius emerged from one of the houses with an Enigma station looking satisfied. He panned the city on fire and smiled at the line of prisoners being led toward the fort entrance. Two guards left the house behind him, shoving a brown-haired girl with her clothes torn down to her knees into the street. Her face had been bloodied and bruised. The body of the boy she had been living with was hauled out and tossed onto a pile of other dead bodies and burned. Peptis rode on his horse and slowed to Joror's side. A nice morning assault is so empowering, especially when there's virtually no defense. Everyone was still asleep, even after we started attacking. They are rather lazy, aren't they? Joror pinched the face of the young human girl. But their women are fighters. I like that. He slapped her across the face and directed his guards to take her away. There is more to search at the strange structure up the hill, but we haven't seen any people there so far, Peptus said. We've done enough. Let's get back and see if we can make it to Chrysius by afternoon. We want all our men to have a satisfying night with the prisoners after a successful victory, Joror said as two soldiers brought his black horse to him. Joror climbed onto the back of his horse and adjusted the chainmail armor beneath his plate mail. Every king in his house had taken his pick of the fertile young women after a battle and took them to bed whether they opened up to him or not. Joror had been in only six major battles, and only two of which involved young maidens during the after-celebration. He took a moment to finish arranging himself. He was about to gig his horse when one of the makeshift house doors flew open and a young man with dark hair and green eyes exited with a woman with blonde hair by his side. The man carried one of the exploding sticks Joror had seen circulating the games recently. He directed it at Joror and fired. The explosion struck him in the chest and he flew off his horse. Soldiers flooded through the intersection from all directions, dogpiling the man with the gun. The girl tried to get away, but she had nowhere to go. Peptus dismounted his horse to help Joror up. Are you all right, my lord? Yes, stupid bastard only hit my armor. Chrysius got to his feet and caught his wind again. He walked over to his attacker who'd been placed on his knees before him. Joror snapped his fingers toward the girl with the blonde hair who was sobbing uncontrollably. Unfortunately, I'm already spent, but you can watch my men rip her to shreds before your eyes. The man glared at Joror, breathing so heavily through his nostrils that his nose flared. You don't like me. Joror paced before the man as six soldiers ripped the clothes off the man's girlfriend. She screamed in protest as they crowded her and began to loosen their armor. That's okay. If I were you, I wouldn't like me either, and not because your girl would normally be scraps for my dogs. Joror's attacker balled his fists as the man held the girl at the ready. Boys, Joror held up a hand and motioned for the guard holding the man's shotgun. I'm just not a very nice person. Joror cocked the shotgun as he walked around behind the woman. He placed the barrel of the gun to the woman's head and fired. Her lover's eyes widened as his jaw dropped. Jor dropped the shotgun and took the dagger from his belt. He walked up to the man and stabbed him in the throat with the knife, allowing him to bleed out over the sandy floor. Jor swore and wiped his hands with a towel that one of his men gave to him. Garbage, said Peptus. Wonder why they hold up here. Where did they come from? People hide in strange places, Jor shrugged, wiping the blood from his dagger. Didn't we run through this place months ago looking for Ferronites? What were those flying machines? I think the situation is a little more complex than you give credit, Chrysius. It doesn't matter. If they come back, we'll kill them again. The two mounted their horses and followed the army filing out of the city. Chance Trelion was one of the last chained prisoners to leave Enigma Station. He had known this would happen if they set up permanent residence on this planet. 
He heard and saw everything. He vowed to make the Alondrons pay for all of this if it was the last thing he ever did. Jonathan waited in the first Virago alone. The quartermaster for the Serena was an enormous man with a bald head and scars all over his shirtless body. He had twisted teeth and muscular arms and legs. His eyes appeared as black discs beneath the dim torchlight of the underground Virago that looked like a coliseum that had barely survived an apocalyptic event. The stands were empty. They didn't look like viewers could sit in them for how dilapidated and ruined they were. The eager first, I see, the quartermaster said as he opened the gates behind Jonathan. There was a line of prisoners on the walk outside the arena. Few of them made eye contact with Jonathan as they filed in. Once everyone was inside, they grouped together. The quartermaster opened the cage to the weapons and turned to address them. My name is Beck. No need for formalities, as only one of you will be leaving this arena today. Rules. The rules are, you get one weapon or item from the cage each round, and you either kill your opponent, or your opponent kills you. Every weapon that enters the arena stays in the arena. We alternate between one-on-one and two-on-two. The winner of the first round fights with a partner for one round, and then there's another round of one-on-one. No partner from a previous round will be pitted against you until the final round, where the last men standing face off. I take it there are no questions. Great, we'll start with you. Beck pointed at Jonathan and looked at the other prisoners who had each taken a huge step back. And you. He directed his fat finger at a man who looked no older than 25 with long black hair. The man had a mustache and dark eyes. Wherever he came from, he had a worn uniform. It was folded down and tied about his sweaty waist. He didn't have a lot of weight, but his body was caked in condensed, tight muscle. He moved forward silently as Beck led them to the cage, which looked like a barred tool shed from the outside. Beck opened the cage door and Jonathan surveyed his options. There were swords, knives, shields, maces, axes large and small, and even a few pieces of armor lying about the shelves. A lot of the weaponry looked too bizarre for Jonathan to understand, like the chains and blades hanging from the post in the corner. On one of the shelves, Jonathan saw an earthen double-barrel shotgun. He picked it up and looked it over. He broke it open, only one shot in the right barrel. Might be worth a round if he didn't miss, otherwise he was better off with a club. The man with the jumper about his hips perused his options and grabbed one of the blades and chains from the post. Jonathan decided to keep it simple and use a longsword. Beck took a spear from one of the weapon racks and led them to the middle of the arena beneath an ornamental chandelier with half the torches burned out. It also hung at a slant, swaying with the wind current channeling through the under-prison. Jonathan and the man stood opposite to one another with Beck standing outside their range of battle. Name, Beck pointed at Jonathan. Jonathan he answered, staring at his opponent. Frey, the man said, glancing from Beck to Jonathan. Considering most of the prisoners had witnessed Jonathan break a man and heave his body off a bridge, Frey didn't seem scared of him. He was either not afraid of Jonathan or, more likely, not afraid of death. There was only one survivor in these games. Everyone knew that. Maybe the best way to go about it all was to play impartial. All right. Let the games begin, Beck said half-heartedly and moved to the edge of the arena, giving them more room. Frey took several paces back and then started swinging the chain over his head. Jonathan watched him with his longsword at the ready. When Frey released his attack, the blade flew to the sand at Jonathan's feet. Frey didn't know how to fight. He was probably in prison for petty theft or something equally useless. 
Frey began to reel in his chain as some of the other prisoners chuckled. Jonathan hated Frey more than any man he had encountered, because he was completely innocent, at least so far as Jonathan knew. Of all who deserved to be murdered, a man like Frey didn't belong on that list. That's what made it so hard when Jonathan darted forward. He had no choice. It was Frey, or him, and Frey wouldn't pass the next round if Jonathan gave him his life. After all, in the scheme of survival, even innocent lives are forfeit. Jonathan's blade came slicing across the image of his opponent. Frey's eyebrows flared as he tried to backstep out of the way, but Jonathan was faster than he anticipated. The sword wasn't sharp, as Jonathan had noted when he picked it up. It still sank through the flesh and muscle tissue of Frey's face, sticking painfully in his skull. Blood oozed down Jonathan's sword as Frey screamed with the sword still hanging at an angle across his vision. Still holding on, Jonathan toted Frey around as he tried to free his sword. He caught some of the disgusted looks of the prisoners as he fought to wrench his weapon from his victim. Beck gave a husky, dry laugh at the debacle. Frey wrapped the blade and chain around Jonathan's leg with the attempt to entangle him, but he was frantic and delusional. Jonathan took hold of the chain and kicked Frey back, sending him to the ground with Jonathan's sword still rammed in his skull. Opaque red flooded down Frey's face and drenched his chest, but he still tried to rise. Jonathan took the hilt of the blade at the end of the chain and tried to bring it down on Frey, who was prying Jonathan's sword from his head. When Frey rolled out of the way, he knocked the sword free. Jonathan managed to pin him in the back with his right shoulder. Laughter filled the virago from the other prisoners as Frey writhed in agony. Jonathan gaped at him, unable to muster the strength to finish the man off. Beck stepped forward and, with the perfect throw of a seasoned spear fisherman, his spear drilled Frey in the head. The spear shivered upright, maintaining the precision of its master's arm. Frey's form fell still. Beck grinned. No need to waste time. You there! He pointed to a man with bright blue eyes who was still grinning from watching Jonathan struggle to kill his opponent. His smile immediately fell to a terrified stare. Pick a partner. Jonathan, you pick one too. Jonathan chose a tall, bald man who was wearing a uniform the same navy blue color as Frey's, but it was buttoned up to the neck on him. There were several other people wearing the same outfit. His opponent chose a man with a thick beard and broad shoulders. At the cage, Jonathan took a circular buckler from the wall on the inner side as his item and laced it over his manica. His partner picked up a glove with two knives sticking out of either end of the fist. It looked like a devastating weapon Batman might carry in one of the crude graphic novel renditions Jonathan used to stay up late to read when he was a kid. There was a second knife glove, but they were only allowed to take one weapon at a time. Their opponents chose a club with a nasty, torqued nail sticking through the end and a hammer with three sharp spikes on either end of the hammerhead. The four paired up and stood opposite to one another in the virago. Beck asked for their names. The bald man's name was Luciton, the blue-eyed man's name was Perkins, and the other's name was Greppin. You may begin when ready. Greppin immediately charged Luciton. Luciton threw a punch with the bladed glove. Greppin tackled him to the ground and drove the hilt of his club into Luciton's skull. Luciton didn't even have a chance before it was over. His arms fell lax as Greppin slammed the weapon into his brain repeatedly. Meanwhile, Jonathan squared off against Perkins. The hammer struck Jonathan's shield. Jonathan took up his longsword from the sandy floor and clashed it across Perkins's hammer neck. He used a technique he had picked up from Balor that Jonathan had dubbed the Roman boxing step and shoved his shield into Perkins while stepping forward, enforcing his stance as well as driving Perkins back. Dropping the buckler, Jonathan forced the longsword down, through Perkins's leg. 
Perkins screamed as he flailed to the ground on his back. Greppen stood up from the bloody mess of Lusitan and ran at Jonathan, intending to defeat him with the same method that he had used on his partner. Jonathan retrieved his shield and brought it to the ready. He turned, sidestepped Greppen, and used another downward strike. He didn't quite decapitate Greppen, but left the blade halfway in his neck as Jonathan ducked the hammer that Perkins threw at him. Jonathan took up the blade and chain that Frey had dropped. He moved for Perkins with the resolve of a serial killer. Perkins turned around and scrambled to run away from him. Lacing the chain about Perkins's neck, Jonathan pressed a foot into the middle of his back with the chain wrapped around his throat as Perkins clawed and gasped for his life. The rounds following went on in a similar manner, except that Jonathan got faster. His empathy began to dissolve as he slaughtered his competition. The group in the Virago dwindled until there were only a few rounds left. 4. Andrus stood at the viewing gate, watching Jorah's the Scorpion rinse his sweaty blonde hair with a bucket of water. He was strong and muscular beneath his copper armor. A great deal of time and effort had gone into his training. Andra loved watching a gladiator break between matches. The testosterone in them was the highest it would ever be at any given time in their lives. He glanced over and saw her watching. He was no stranger to suitors and onlookers at every moment of his life. Jorez allowed her to stare and continued rinsing his hair. You have my favor, Jorez, Andra said, catching his attention again. If you live until the end of this day, I will not only buy you, I will fulfill your every earthly desire. Do you know how many of you I get each match? He asked, walking to the bars, blocking him from her. How many earthly desires do you think I'm allowed to enjoy? Your life of slaughter is over after tonight, unless, she cocked her head, you just enjoy that sort of thing. But you'll kill for me instead of Lutheran, and believe me when I say that I am a much more desirable employer than a bald glutton who doesn't even show up for your matches. She gave a playfully sad face as Jorah's met the bar separating them. So it will be. I will win this day and tonight. I dine with the Lady Winray and all the wonders that come with her. So you shall, she grinned. It looks like I've taken up all of your time. Good luck today, Jorez. She turned and made her way back up the ramp to begin the long trek back up the steps to the royal box. Jonathan pulled his blade from the last corpse, which heralded his victory over the first match in the Virago. His arms were caked with blood, his hands shook and his muscles threatened to give way after unclenching from the tightness of battle. You did well, said Beck. You have an option now. You can take a short break and eat, and then register as the last contestant of the day for the Defringo. Or you can call it quits for the night and sleep in the stables. Should you choose the second option, the Defringo will be weeks away. You'll have to fight in the preliminary stages first. I think you'd make a good show today since Jorez needs a formidable opponent and the flow is a trickle with challengers until the beginning of spring. I'll face him, Jonathan said without thinking. Perhaps it was his ego or maybe he was just ready to die. But if he didn't make as much progress as quickly as he could, then he would die on this planet. And if this Jorez person was his executioner, then all the better. Come then, let's get you cleaned up and put some food in your stomach so you don't drop your sword out there, Beck chuckled. Jonathan followed him through a locked door. Beyond that door, everything changed. The floors were laid out with red carpet and the light radiated from lamps instead of primitive torches. The walls were perfectly square with portraits of dukes and kings lining the hallway. 
There was gold trim about the base of the wall and at the ceilings as well. What happens if I kill Jorez? Jonathan asked. That would make you champion of the day. You want that, but Jorez isn't like the others you fought. He's been trained. He does this for a living. It will be interesting, that's for sure. So interesting, I'll probably be sending out a few messengers before your match. I can have the Defringo full within two hours. Can I bet? Beck laughed. You need money first. You don't get thrown in prison and tossed a sack of shards as well. If you win, you'll make money. After that, you can bet on others, but you can't bet on yourself. But can I have others bet on myself on my behalf? Jonathan asked. Beck turned around with a sneaky glint in his eye. He clapped a meaty hand on Jonathan's shoulder. You think like a politician. What do you do in your spare time is up to you. Once you get spare time, Dorez will probably chop off your head and you'll get to see the view of Shirasa from the lowest pike on the wall for weeks. Jonathan said nothing as they passed through another door and entered a bigger corridor. This is Castle Trimley, said Beck. You'll bow when addressed and obey every order, no matter how tedious or condescending it may seem. Your allegiance is always to the King of Narsus. Lord surveys Narsus. Should you do well, you'll need to know that. They walked through a great room with molten metal pouring through large ducts crisscrossing over the main pathway. The room glowed with warmth as they walked by a hall leading to a smithing and smelting quadrant that looked vacant. Everyone leaves early on Poste to see the games. Everyone's ready for the weekend. Poste? Please explain, Jonathan said. You know, Poste. Beck stared at him like he was crazy. Tomorrow is fair day. Yesterday was May Day. I don't understand. Jonathan wanted to explain his contrast, that to him, Friday was the day before the weekend, but that would make as much sense to Beck as Poste, Fair Day, and May Day meant to him. How can such a skilled fighter be so stupid? I wouldn't try figuring it out now, Beck said. There's a good chance most of everything you know will be scattered across the sand in the next hour. The room narrowed to a hallway with alcoves containing different staircases leading up and down on either side of the hall. They entered one seemingly at random and began to ascend the steps. You'll only be allowed up to three bowls of rice before match. If I was you, Beck said as they continued climbing the steps, I wouldn't eat but one. Stringy guy like you will hurl his guts up before he gets to the field. A lot of lucky prisoners eat all three, thinking they're getting the best meal they've had in years. Three bowls is what a champion would need to get through a match. They've been conditioned to have the right metabolism to use all that energy to their advantage. Hey, Beck, said Jonathan. Beck glanced over the railing at Jonathan below. Do I look like I'm just lucky? Jonathan met his gaze. The light filling the column of stairs was that of a lamp several stories higher. Beck's eyes were shiny in the dimness, but he seemed to be considering Jonathan carefully. Come on, he said and continued climbing. As Meyer continued watching the afternoon tournament, he noticed a break in the growing crowd to his left. When he looked over, he saw Harold Rowe sliding between knees and seats nearby. He had a thick head of brown hair, a clean-shaven face, and a fierce determination that he carried in stride. Rowe wore a gray duster over his formal tan military tunic, and shiny leather boots that stopped just below the knee. "'Good to see you here, Meyer. How is the great port city of Dartus?' Rowe asked. Doing well. Farnham has just signed a new trade agreement with Chryseus. The price of grapes is sure to go down, and you know what that means, Meyer said. I do. I was part of the agreement, said Rowe. Surveys Narsus has recently assigned me as the Parsi to Doc's overseer. 
I doubt I'll be training champions this time next year. Didn't you once tell me over a pint of ale that you wanted to be the general of Chrysius's army? Is that what you're gearing to do? It would be nice, Roe shrugged. How do you work for such an arrogant old fool? Meyer asked. He's getting worse, Chrysius. I don't believe mentally that he's capable of running a kingdom anymore, and our alliances with Cherry, Trenton, Tefidel, Rickardson, and Yuvaria are shaky at best. A lot of people are considering action. Interesting. A possible uprising against the great king of Chrysius, Meyer said. Not an uprising. A trial that will assuredly declare Chrysius unfit to rule. He will then be removed from his position legally and without conflict or violence. His son will take over and all will remain essentially the same. There's no fun in that, Meyer frowned. Chrysius has a bad reputation for corruption. If I'm the last man with any sort of moral compass at the table, then at least it's a good start. Maybe the rest of the city will follow my example and we can polish the tarnish from our name. You certainly are ambitious, Roe. Have you ever considered the position of king? Meyer asked, jokingly. Roe didn't appear to think it was very funny. Meyer changed the subject. What do you think of Jorez? Roe glanced at Meyer. I think he's destined for a fall. You get that feeling too? Meyer laughed. Maybe it's the overwhelming pride. The two sat in silence as the last of the current round finished before the break preceding the final round. Jonathan's stomach rumbled from the rice he had just eaten. He had been allowed some leather equipment to wear so he didn't look like he had just come from the Undercity. There was a lot of discrimination toward champions without a lot of time in the ring. Beck explained that they were going to have to pull the fabric over the audience's eyes so they wouldn't figure out that he actually wasn't prepared for this battle. The goal was for Jonathan to provide at least ten minutes of entertainment before being executed by Jorez. It was expected of both of them by everyone. Beck, the quartermasters from the other cities, the king of Castle Tripoli, the audience. If Jonathan walked away from the field alive this evening, then something wouldn't be right. He had a few minutes left before the battle, so he tightened the straps on his armor and tried to do some meditation exercises on the stone seat beneath the defringo. He could hear the cheering crowd through the walls nearby, the pounding of feet on the surface above. There were a few others in the ready room with him, but his fight was to be the last event of the evening. At least his death would be worth more than swill in the gutter. People would genuinely enjoy watching him die this way. Beck ambled down the steps and sat on the stone beside Jonathan. Are you ready? Have you made prayer to Omine? Pray to the one who left me broken here? Jonathan's eyes met Beck's. If I defeat Jorez, it won't be by Amine's will. It won't be because Jorez was too slow. It will be because I made it happen. Nothing else matters. There is no fated hand that rests over the pieces of this game on this day. Beck seemed unnerved by the statement. The people of Alondranon were like the earthlings of the Middle Ages when Christianity was just what everyone did. No one knew or thought otherwise, and it caused a millennium of war and famine. One day, the Alondrons would figure out that there is no Amine, the way the Earthlings figured out in the 21st century that they were alone in their little section of the universe without an omnipotent presence to guide them. A bell rang through the preparation hall. Beck glanced at the doorway where Jonathan was going to enter. The smirk returned to his face. It's time! Jonathan stood, feeling as ready as he ever would. Beck led him to the threshold leading to the inner Virago ring. He pulled the ring on a chain and the barred door opened. Beck motioned for Jonathan to enter. He stepped past Beck and entered. 
the door slid closed behind him. He walked forward, seeing the star-dotted lavender sky through an opening in the center of the massive city ceiling. The seats of the Defringo were full to capacity. There were several platforms dispersed around the wide arena. Jorez, a man with blonde hair and a strong upper body, walked around the rim of the arena with his arms raised over his head. The crowd closest to the floor cheered wildly. Jonathan met the cage on the outskirts of the battleground. Jorez jogged across the field as another bald quartermaster in plate mail made his way to the cage. The quartermaster pulled the chains away and opened the door to the weapons alcove. Jonathan went in and took a longsword. Unlike the one he had in his previous match, this one looked sharp enough to cut through metal. Jonathan noticed that Jorez had a piecemeal assortment of armor. He wore plate shoulders over a mesh of chainmail and matching chainmail leggings, and leather boots with metal cuff guards to allow for maximum maneuverability while providing a guard in the likely event that someone went for his feet. He was well defended, and a few inches taller than Jonathan. This wasn't going to be easy. Jorah's picked the halberd and the two made for the middle of the arena. The crowd went silent, and Jorah's dropped to his knees. It took Jonathan a moment to remember to do the same. He bowed and noticed a man in red with a copper chestplate standing at a towering speaker's podium on one side of the field. He wore a crown on his head. I hope you've all had a wonderful post-day evening, the Lord of Shirasa called. We'll be finishing this tournament with a finale between Jorez the Scorpion and a newcomer who has yet to prove himself. You may rise. The crowd cheered and clapped as he turned around and sat back down next to a woman with black hair and a soft face, wearing an elaborate white get-up that labeled her as royalty. Jonathan and Jorez stood. Jorez looked high into the stands. Jonathan followed his gaze and saw a woman in one of the royal boxes looking down to him. He met Jonathan's eye and raised his halberd to the ready. Jonathan bent his knees and watched Jorez as the bald quartermaster stood between them with his arm raised. He chopped forward and moved back. Jonathan squinted. Jorez took one step and fired the halberd at him. It happened faster than Jonathan had anticipated. He blocked with the sword, barely holding off the attack as Jorez torqued the end of his weapon to throw Jonathan's sword away. Jonathan unhooked the sword from the halberd and rolled. He fired a chop over his head and cut Jorez's spear in half. The look on his face was that of annoyance. Jonathan kicked Jorez onto his back in the sand and rose to his feet. The crowd awed. Jonathan moved in, murder in his eyes. Jorez threw the useless end of the halberd away and grabbed the bladed end from the sand. He got up and heaved the blade at Jonathan. His manica band deflected the lash, giving Jonathan the opportunity to put his fist into Jorez's chain-linked stomach, knocking him back to the floor. The audience was entranced. Jorez looked angry. Jonathan remembered Beck telling him to make the fight last at least ten minutes, but it had hardly been one. How on earth was he to survive for that long without killing Jorez or allowing Jorez to kill him? Jorez rose, determination in his eyes. He took hold of the remaining hilt of his halberd close to the neck near the weapon side like a hatchet. His weapon was slow, and Jonathan's wasn't. Jorez moved in regardless. He hacked at Jonathan with the determination that only a mass murderer can muster. Jonathan deflected each blow as he paced backward. Jonathan tried to maneuver to a different side, but Jorez forced him back in line no matter where he went. He was working so hard, keeping Jonathan on the defensive with a constant attack, sweat had begun to drip from Jorez's forest of blonde hair down the sides of his face. He started to slow down, tire from the monotony. 
Jonathan was about to go for Joris's legs when Joris threw the halberd at Jonathan, and then jogged away. Surprised, Jonathan kicked the forgotten halberd away as Joris took up a previous contender's weapon, a short sword. Everything that falls in the arena stays in the arena until the end of the games. Jonathan walked toward Joris, making sure to stay as calm as humanly possible on the inside. Joris met him with a renewed sense of vigor. Their blades clashed in a flurry of speed and maneuverability. The crowd stood as the battle leaned in different directions for each opponent. Joris nicked Jonathan's bicep and Jonathan caught a piece of Joris's ear. They were like a gyroscope of moving blades and sparks, everything within moving so quickly that nothing was visible. Jonathan struck down as Joris defended up, cutting the end of Jonathan's blade off, putting Jonathan on pure defense. He managed to get out of the danger zone, only because Joris was breathing so heavily that he couldn't go forward. Jonathan was winded, but not nearly as much as Joris. He scanned the field for items. There was a sigh, a mace, a hammer, and then he saw it. Joris followed him as he ran across the field and snatched up a staff with a wooden center and metal ends. An arm remained attached when he picked up the weapon, so he had to shake the fingers free. Joris caught up to Jonathan as he turned around and blocked his thrust. Jonathan moved methodically, regurgitating his training with Balor as Joris tried to penetrate his defense. He was shot down with each attempt until Joris grew too tired to keep up. Jonathan brought the staff end down, splintering Joris's left shoulder. Terrified, Joris lashed out and attempted to flee. Jonathan tripped him and he fell hard on his sternum. Jonathan kicked his short sword away and jabbed Joris hard in the back, breaking several bones but keeping him alive. Joris attempted to crawl away with the last strength of his life. Jonathan forced the staff hard on the side of Joris's boot, pinning him in place so that as he struggled, he drew only sand. Looking up to the stands, Jonathan saw the woman for whom Joris had been fighting. She looked mortified as Jonathan considered his next course of action. Adrenaline pumped through his veins, his hatred amplified for everyone on this planet. He bent over, picked up Joris by his pelvis, and positioned his fingers between the mesh of his torso chainmail and under his ribcage. Jonathan hoisted Joris up over his head. The crowd gasped as they witnessed the steady downfall of Joris the scorpion. Jonathan brought the middle of his back down on his knee. Joris gave a defeated gasp as his eyes widened at the star-dotted sky over Jonathan's face. Jonathan lifted him back over his head and dropped him again. The torment on Joraz's face as his back shattered was gut-wrenching. Jonathan lifted him and broke him a final time. He pulled with each hand as Joraz's center of gravity weighed on his knee, severing the remaining tendons and muscles holding Joraz's body together. With a final exertion of effort from each hand, Jonathan ripped Joraz in two, flinging the pieces of him aside. No one cheered in the crowds. They stared in horror at the atrocity, the absolute dishonor of dismembering a fallen foe. His arms were covered in blood again. Jonathan surveyed the audience with disgust as he made to exit the field. Who were they to judge him? He had been stripped of all personal identity and thrown into a filthy prison twice. He had been forced to fight and execute all these people for the sake of entertainment, and now they were going to say that he went too far? Jonathan was beyond caring. If they were going to force him to play their games, he would play them his way, and there wasn't a damn thing they could do about it. Or they could kill him. Either way, Jonathan would win. Every kingdom on Alondronon is different, but the rules to each city's virago are the same. It's not a complicated system, buying the champions or exchanging owners. 
However, after Jonathan's match, which Rem and Worth didn't bother to attend due to his drug addiction, every single quartermaster for every city that had a representative watching the match arrived at the auction stand with hopes of putting their bid in for Jonathan. He might have been brutal, but it was a kind of hating attitude that most of them had never seen. Most people with that much aggression were considered joggernauts or berserkers for the army. They couldn't contribute to society or hold a job otherwise, and most didn't get through the first round of the Virago. There is very little skill in losing control and getting angry. Even Andra Winray arrived, her jaw tight and lips pursed. She despised Jonathan for his insult to Jorez and her. She wanted to purchase him just so she could whip him and beat him around the house whenever she pleased. Andra always got what she wanted. Things were considered very wrong if luck didn't turn in her favor. Meyer Winshock and Harold Rowe arrived side by side and sat on a set of chairs toward the back. Rowe had already decided that he was going to pass on Jonathan. Meyer, on the other hand, wanted to make certain Lady Winray and Jermaine Signal didn't piss Jonathan's fate away on useless servitude and house chores. They were notorious for buying potential champions for those very reasons. Fascination filled everyone's eyes. On few occasions did the underdog pull out on top. No one had ever pulled a win and boasted the way Jonathan did. It was a ruthless conviction, the attitude of survivor and winner, the attitude of a potential champion. Draft True, the auctioneer's voice, emerged from the back room of the auction hall and took the stand. He was a tall, bald man with a thick beard whose voice was famous on the continent of Ire. Also Duke of the Society of Modern Arts, he frequently hosted banquets before putting on an enormous show in Cathra in the autumn of each year. Well, that was quite a battle, his voice boomed from the podium and carried to the ears of everyone seated before him. Jorez will be sorely missed, his antics on the field never forgotten. This man Jonathan, however, Raymond Worth's assistant told me that if Jonathan won, start the bidding at 200 shards. Do we have any takers? Lady Winray and Jemaine Single had their hands in the air first. Nearly everyone else raised their hands as well except Roe. 250, 300, 350, 400? The number rose and everyone kept their hands in the air. 500! A few dropped. 600! 700! Single's hand fell, but Winray was staring determinedly at True's face as her arm remained rigid. Meyer, Winray, Ragwool of Cherry, and Nibbins of Tefidel kept their hands up as the number broke the thousand mark. Doris had sold last for 1,200 shards. Jonathan was at 1,500 when Ragul and Nibbins dropped out. It was a battle between Andra Winray and Meyer Winshock, cousins oddly enough, though they had never associated with one another other than exchanging a few words in passing. The bidding got to 2,200 when Winray decided to bail. It wasn't that she couldn't afford to go higher, but she knew Meyer had Farnham Dartus's money behind him. There was always a breaking point, but Andra wasn't interested in finding it. Sold to Meyer Winshock of Tartus. You have until noon tomorrow to collect your prisoner or else the bidding shall start again. Thank you for attending the Poste de Frango Virago. Have a wonderful weekend and I'll see you on Bette as always. Draft True smiled and waved at everyone before descending the steps to the podium. He disappeared through a door into the high hall where nobility could navigate through the city of Shirasa without having to rub elbows with the lower classes. Congratulations, Harold Rowe met with Meyer. Lady Winray made directly for Meyer. Enjoy your success. I hope it's as hollow as Jonathan's last victory. You know most lucky winners don't live past their first round. You just wasted your money, she scoffed. They do still sell male prostitutes at the Genesis brothel, correct? 
Myra asked. Son of a bitch, Winry shook her head and marched off. Harrow Rose stifled a laugh. You know she'll get you back in Narciss. Once she tells her father what she wants, he'll buy Jonathan in a heartbeat. That's the beauty of inflation, my good man, Meyer said as they entered the south quarter of Shirasa near the Defringo. The games in Narciss don't begin until summer. That gives me all spring to rack up enough wins with Jonathan for him to be worth three times what we paid. If he's truly a winner, Roe added. I have a good feeling about him. They found the entrance to the lower level of the Defringo and passed through the larder to the large, circular ready room. Jonathan was sitting opposite to Beck, the quartermaster for the lower virago of Shirasa. Jonathan looked shell-shocked, his eyes wide and face gaunt. He had changed into a simple tunic and brown leather leggings and boots. Well, this is interesting, Meyer said as he sat down across from Jonathan. Jonathan looked at him without saying anything. My name is Meyer Winshock. This is a good friend of mine, Harold Rowe. Meyer gave his introduction. I've heard Jonathan is your name. Fascinating. He's not much of a talker, Beck said. A little different, this one. I assume you've purchased me, Jonathan asked. So I am no longer a slave of House Worth. I'm a slave of House Winshock. You are a member of Farnham Dartus's Hall of Champions. We will train you to contend with other champions who may prove to be an equal or more difficult challenge than Jorah's the Scorpion. We're going to train you with hopes of dethroning Nikus. He's the current champion of Narciss. So I have no choice but to continue murdering, Jonathan said. Meyer's eyes darted left, then right. You're very good at murdering. Not everyone gets paid to perform where they excel, but you'll be paid handsomely to perform the way you did in that arena earlier. And what if I choose not to murder anymore? I'll sell you and you'll either be put to work or forced to murder by someone else. It's inevitable, but I like to believe we're fair owners, Meyer said. Is there any way to regain my freedom? Jonathan asked. If you defeat Narcissus' champion, you'll be free for the most part. However, you'll be called to defend your title should a new challenger arise. At least until you're too old for it to be interesting. No one's going to call you out of retirement if you require a cane or carriage to get around, unless you want to die in the arena. A lot of people do. It is more honorable to die in the arena than to slip away at death's final beckon in the comfort of one's home. Not where I come from. Regardless, there comes a time in your life when you must fight. There is no alternative. So perform at your best and the stories of your tribulations will stretch far and wide. Make your stories heard on every continent. That's very sweet, but I know I'm just a project for you to grow. Everyone loves me when I win, but if I lose, you'll shrug and move on to the next project. I'm afraid that's simply how it works, Jonathan. Now we should go and gather our supplies. Our ship for Dartus leaves from Cathera in two days, Meyer said. He and Rose stood. Beck got to his feet and helped Jonathan up. You did well. I hope Omne figures out a way to find you before it's too late. Good luck. He shook Jonathan's hand. They shook and parted ways. Beck disappeared through the door nearby that led back to the prison. Come, Jonathan. It's a long ride to Cathra, Meyer said. Jonathan did as he was told and followed his new owners. Harold Rowe led the way. They found the stable, received their horses, and were on their way to Cathra by morning's first light. 5. Ryan Thompson, Clara Wallace, and Juan Langston hiked through the wood as the twilight dimness crept out of the sky and into the trees. They had been traveling across the continent of Eyre for the last four weeks, trying to get away from the attention of the road guards. Ever since the beginning of winter, the patrols had been on full force, checking everyone's status and asking questions. 
the Alondrons knew something had changed upon their world recently. Nearly every survival and recovery group that had formed so far had fallen, the inhabitants captured. All of the humans that were captured were never seen again. The three had only survived because there were only three of them. Night had fallen by the time they had put a comfortable distance between themselves and the main road. The three set up camp by a river. Juan meditated while Clara gathered wood for a fire. Ryan skinned the rabbits they had caught and prepared to skewer them. They had not said very much to one another in recent days, partly because there was nothing to say. Another complication was that Ryan and Clara had confided in one another, leaving Juan to follow as a third wheel. While Juan didn't mind in the beginning, he appeared tired of being the reason for their awkward silence. He was tired in general. All the running, hiding, hunting, surviving, it took its toll on a person's sanity. Tomorrow, said Juan as he watched the crackling fire cook the rabbits, you two will continue north. I'm going to stay here. That isn't wise, Ryan said. We need to stick together. The three of us can manage, Clara agreed. The two of you can manage just fine without me, and I can manage just fine without you. Each of us could probably survive for a certain period of time, said Ryan, but our odds are better in numbers. I no longer fear anything, not even death, Juan said, staring into the crackling fire before them. But we need you, Juan, Clara said. You perpetuate your need with every breath you take, Clara, Juan sighed. Everyone's dead or lost. Clara sat on her end of the fallen tree with her head down. I wish we could get everyone back together, like a meeting place that the Alondrons could accept so we could stop running. Even if we stop, we'll never stop running on this planet, Juan said. We're clearly doing something wrong, said Ryan. Based on what we know, the Alondrons only attack when we make it clear that we're not from this planet. They attack if they're suspicious that we're of the ethnicity of those who claim to be from Earth. But they don't attack their own civilians or people they think are Alondron civilians, Clara said. Blending is the only method. It's going to take a sensitive touch and the right kind of exposure. This is something that you two must do, said Juan. It does not require my assistance. It'll take more than just us to do anything special, Ryan said. You will find the people you need among our survivors. Tomorrow, I go my own way, for better or worse. There's nothing we can do to change your mind, Clara asked. Juan shook his head. I'll miss our morning meditation sessions, Ryan frowned. You'll be fine on your own. Don't drop the habit. It may be the only thing you have to keep you going. Imagine having nothing to keep you going. Then, you're in a very bad way, Juan said. The three watched the fire die in silence and then returned to their bedrolls. Lydia had emerald blue eyes and long black hair that had been pulled into a ponytail. She was smaller than everyone else at the table, first and second year recruits from Joe Academy of Narciss. Her best friend, Cess, rested his meaty elbows on the table as he drank and listened to his companion's stories. This was the Academy bar about six blocks from Narciss Castle. Every night, things got so crazy here that the place was more likely to shut down for the evening than to gracefully meet closing time. So, continued Germ, a first-year blacksmithing student, Little Vreck had just finished pounding out his chest piece when Shamir asked if he remembered to give the small hammer to Burks. Vreck gives Burks the hammer, then walks right over with his welding gloves still on and slips the armor over his shoulders. I've never seen anyone throw a suit of armor off their body so fast. Lydia laughed as Friend across the table met her eye. He nudged her knee. She rolled her eyes and averted her gaze. 
She and friend had shared a small fling a few weeks back. Both were drunk, so it was more of an accident than anything else, but ever since he had been trying to meet with her again. It was such an impulsive decision, Lydia hardly considered it legitimate intimacy. He hadn't been very satisfying, not that she had been in any position to judge. She had only told Sess and had asked that he make sure Friend didn't try anything. Sess usually allowed her to crash at his place unless he had company planned, in which case she just snuck back into her father's home and slept in her own bed. Tonight would be one of the latter. Sess and Nona, the bartender, had been making eyes at one another since he arrived. Lydia hated staying at her father's, not that he bothered her or even took the time to look for her, but she was ready to leave home. There's just a certain time in a person's life when they need to sever the umbilical cord and get out on their own. Sess leaned over to her. You okay if Poi walks you home? I'll be fine, Sess. I can make it back okay? He nodded. Lydia finished her round of ale with the others and decided it was time to head out. She went to the bar restroom and exited out the back so she wouldn't have to go out the front. Unfortunately, Friend was waiting for her. Hey, Lydia, he said and began following her. Hey, Friend, she sighed. Can I walk you home? I think I'm just gonna run it. I'll get there faster if I go by myself, she shrugged. We've been to my house, but I want to see yours. That's not such a good idea, friend. I sneak out because my dad is crazy. If he found out about you, he'd beat me within an inch of my life, and probably kill you. Come on, just for a few minutes. What would be the harm? Can I not just see your bedroom? He pressed her. She was getting annoyed. No, friend, I don't want company tonight. You will never see my house. Why? He asked, genuinely hurt by her answer. Because no one sees my house. That doesn't make sense. Come on, why are you being this way? I thought we had a good time. We did, friend, but it's just that I don't have a house, she lied. That's why I can't let you come with me. It's too embarrassing for me to let you guys see me sneak into the poor quarter. You? He laughed. I don't buy it. You'd be the cleanest poor person I've ever seen. Come on, Lydia, let's go get a room in the inn and have fun all night. I told you, friend. Friend grabbed her by her ponytail, but Lydia whirled around with her pocket knife at the ready and slashed at him. He recoiled, looking mortified that she would be so quick to draw a weapon. If you touch me again, asshole, I'll cut off your balls and feed them to you. She pushed him back and ran down the avenue. Lydia, I'm sorry. Please don't go, he called, chasing after her. Lydia ran but didn't turn with the alley. She ran up the wall and caught the ledge to the rook separating the commercial district from the upper district. Friend watched her pull herself up with ease and disappear into the shadows of Narsus. The city of Dartus was a breath of fresh air for Jonathan. A bustling port city that had been established nearly 200 years prior, Dartus had changed rulers four times and changed names twice since its founding. The Alondron cities were either renamed when a new duke or king took the throne, or the initial name remained as a reminder of the years that the inhabitants had appreciated so greatly. Sometimes names were given to cities in remembrance of a fallen hero or great leader even if that person didn't have the fortune to grace the throne. Farnum Dartus, a tall and charismatic presence within the city, had taken over after assisting the third Chryseus with the Fahrenheit problem during the previous invasion, taking over from the late Grieg Tate who had died nearly twenty years prior. The town had conjoined democratically without a leader in the time before Dartus initiated his reign. The morning after his arrival, Jonathan stood in the sparring grounds looking up to the pink morning sky. The air was cooler here than it had been in Shirasa. Seeing the massive city beyond the cliff ledge nearby was surreal. The ocean, the pine trees surrounding the houses and lining the streets. There were so many Alondrons living the way humans lived on Earth. 
Entrepreneurs lived in those houses. Slaves to societal demands, people with small businesses, poor people, rich people. All of them had problems, complications, money issues, weddings, births, deaths in the family, funerals. Granted, it was all on a different time and on a different planet, but nothing was inherently different. Everyone just wanted to live and die in peace. Meyer entered the sparring hall with Farnham Dardis at his side. Dardis was a tall man with a bushy blonde mustache. He looked jovial and kind when he smiled, but when he approached Jonathan, his face became hard. Jonathan! He extended his hand for Jonathan to take. It's good to finally meet you! Jonathan took his hand and shook. He did as he figured he was expected and dropped to one knee before his new owner. You may rise, said Dartus. So you pulled a man in half, I hear. Jonathan got to his feet. He shrugged. Unfortunately, Dartus broke into a slow pace, you won't be able to do that again. It's customary to give a man his dignity in the arena when he falls. Most of you are prisoners and this lifestyle is an insult to your being as our differences are circumstantial. I could be you in any other life, and you could be me. As a man forced to live the way you must, fighting men or being forced to live in the same way, it's only right to respect your foe even in death. I didn't want to take his life, Jonathan said. But you did, said Dartus, and that comes with a responsibility. If you were to fight in my name for my reputation, you'll follow my rules. No more disrespectful behavior. Do I have your word? Yes, Jonathan nodded. Good. Now Meyer is the overseer of training. Your trainer will be someone we've only just hired. He's fresh out of Ethan Academy, on the west coast of the city, so you'll be breaking one another in. His name is Deltia Chester, and he'll be along shortly. It was good to meet you, Jonathan. If we meet again, it will be because you've done something either very good or something very bad. Do your best to make certain it's not the latter. Farnham Dartus gave a small bow of his head before turning on his heel and making his way back to the castle door. All clear. I think he likes you, Meyer said. He's just being cautious while he figures me out, Jonathan said. Nobility, Meyer waved. Your next match will be on in today. That's four days from now. You're off on Vinday to do as you please within the Hall of Champions, but you're not permitted to leave. If anyone sees you in the castle, you'll be executed. I just want to make that clear. Come, I'd like to show you around the hall, if I may. Meyer led Jonathan to an archway in the wall that surrounded the whole of the sparring grounds. A wide bridge led down to a sunny courtyard and grove that extended to the edge of the shelf overlooking the city of Dartis. Pine trees were everywhere. At the top of the hill at the back of the shelf was a great marble building with four marble columns holding up the front step. It took them a few minutes to get to the path leading to the building. That path leads to Champion Forest, where most of the ceremonies are held after successes. Training is also done in there, Meyer said, pointing at a wooded area. They continued up the path and climbed the steps to the building. You will be permitted to leave with a security escort to places within the city on Fair Day and Prey Day. Any other Fair Day than today because we have to get you ready for in today. The Alondron Week system continued to befuddle him. They entered through the doors of the building and stepped into a hall corridor that went through the interior and exited out the back leading to another sparring ground. There were staircases leading to the second floor from the main foyer to walkways feeding different rooms. A man on the second floor with long brown hair left his room and locked his door. He turned around and saw Jonathan and Meyer standing near the threshold. New prey! The man hurried down the steps, jumping down the last four. He stuck out his hand for Jonathan to take. Name's Mahat. 
Jonathan shook his hand. Jonathan. Mahat has been here for almost a year, said Meyer. That's pretty good for a champion. I've been lucky, but which one of us hasn't? He shrugged. Jonathan nodded. Twas good to meet you, Culpa brother. Mahat gave a bow of his head before heading for a large hall that looked like a medieval cafeteria. Mahat took a long roll of bread from a box at the back of the room near a ceramic oven. He exited out the kitchen entrance. Jonathan and Meyer could see him through the kitchen window as he sat at one of the stone tables beneath the pine trees in the courtyard. There were several other people out there as well. This is the study? Meyer showed Jonathan to a three-story room full of bookshelves packed with books. There was a clean-shaven man sitting in one of the chairs browsing through a stack of books he had pulled down from the shelves. You are free to lounge around here whenever you please, assuming you've completed your training for the day. Do try to put books back where you found them. Someone will have to teach me how to read your language. Sure, you're not the first illiterate champion to join our ranks, but if you're willing to learn, we will show you how. Ah, so this must be the one I'm here to see, a man said from the doorway to the library. Jonathan and Meyer turned around to see a man not much older than Jonathan with slicked back brown hair and piercing green eyes. Deltia Chester. He shook Meyer's hand and then Jonathan's. Meyer introduced himself and then Jonathan. Looks like you and I will be getting to know each other well. Jonathan crossed his arms over his chest, fixing Deltia with a hard stare. Shall we get started shortly? Deltia asked. Once we finish the tour, agreed Meyer, we'll meet you in the grounds. Deltia nodded and left without saying anything. This is your room. Meyer and Jonathan followed the walkway by a large window and found a room adjacent to the library entrance on the second floor. Meyer opened the door with a key and gave the key to Jonathan. It had a leather lanyard tied to it so Jonathan could wear it around his neck. Inside the room was a bed, a toilet, a chair by the window, a three-layered wooden chest of drawers, and a small desk and table. You're required to keep the room clean and the bed made. You can personalize however you please, so long as it's neat and honorable. Jonathan looked around the room. He could not have imagined a more perfect setup. All of this was happening because of his perseverance to survive. The last place he had slept was on the ground during the three-day trip south to Cathra. Tonight he would be sleeping in his own bed, in his own room, in easily the safest place in the entire city, with his own toilet. He would be able to empty his bowels without a dozen people gaping at him, not that he'd had very much to drop since his arrival on Alondranon. It was the best he'd had since having his room on the Enigma. This is incredible, Jonathan faced Meyer. You haven't the first clue of how great this is compared to what I've grown accustomed to. We get that a lot. Anyone who comes from the lower Virago knows what hell looks like, and it's not where Kleppendorf holds court. Fortunately, there is no lower Virago in Dartus. We have a Virago near Mason's Tower in the market, but we prefer to attend the games in Crisius where there is an entire level dedicated to quenching your thirst for slaughter. I think I've seen as much of Crisius as I care to see. Jonathan cocked his brow, remembering the events following the Enigma's crash. There's a bathhouse on the other end of the second floor, said Meyer. Everything is at your disposal so long as you respect the facilities and do as you're told in the arena. The penalty floor isn't part of the tour, but keep that image in mind. You should go meet Deltia. Your leather guards are in the bottom drawer over there. I'll be around, so let me know if you need anything, Jonathan. He bowed to Jonathan and left the room, closing the door behind him. Jonathan basked in the silence of his own space. He could be at peace here, between days of drenching my hands in blood. He sat on the edge of the bed and ran his hands through his hair that had grown long in the months prior. 
His facial hair had returned since shaving at Aya's house. Observing his forearms, Jonathan realized that he was in the best shape he had ever been in his life. His hands were thick and strong, his chest and stomach tight, his thighs toned and calves pressed. He could run a hundred miles without getting tired and kill from sunup to sundown. How had he come to this life? How, after being who he was on earth, did he become this person? A primitive murderer sworn to spill blood without a moment's hesitation. And how could he be so good at it? Maybe all his life he had been forcing himself to be that other person, but at heart, this is who he was meant to be. If he had been born at any other time on earth, perhaps he'd have been some kind of warrior or military leader. He thought about these things, trying not to lose the contrast between this life and the life of leisure he had led before. Jonathan searched the drawers. The top two drawers were empty. The bottom housed a leather chest piece, helmet, bracers, elbow pads, leggings, and boots. Jonathan took off his shirt and put on the chest piece and helmet. He slipped on the leggings, boots, elbow pads, and bracers, and finally the helmet. Hurrying down the steps, he entered the sparring ground. The sun was high in the afternoon day sky, baking the six other duos training for the next assigned Virago. Deltia stood at the back of the sparring ground near a weapons rack holding a practice sword. I'd like you to know that I saw your match, Deltia said. Most everyone berated you for finishing him in a dishonorable way, but what you lacked was drama. The people want a climactic end. You have to make them want it, make them work for it. These games are nothing but a giant show. If you go in and kill everyone as quickly as you can and get out, you'll be whipped by your quartermaster as punishment. Your job is not to win, it's to stay alive for long enough to line your owner's pockets with profit from the show. Winning just happens as a result. So I'm supposed to just dance around like Jorez and put on an act for the crowd? Jonathan asked. Jorez was an idiot. Your persona can be whatever you want it to be. The best approach in your situation is to play cat and mouse. You have the upper hand, but give your opponent the sense that he's in control. Observe. I have a practice sword and you don't. I want you to land a punch in my face. Really, try. Jonathan did as he was asked and advanced on Deltia. Readying the practice sword, Deltia waited for him to strike. Jonathan made a move to hit, but Deltia batted his wrist with the back of his offhand fluidly and pushed Jonathan back with a quick flex of his fingers. Jonathan feigned right and struck out with his left. Deltia used the flat side of the practice sword to catch his wrist and then punched Jonathan in the chest with the rounded end of the hilt. I'm never striking you. I'm just deflecting you and letting you tire. You need to become water. You didn't even lose your breath killing Jorez. You can outmaneuver your competition and still put on a good show for the big dogs upstairs. They'll reward you handsomely for it. Again. Jonathan nodded. He moved in for the strike, slipped his foot behind Deltia's, and pushed him before he could defend. Deltia fell over Jonathan's ankle and landed on his ass in the dust. Jonathan smiled as he turned around. Furious and red-faced, Deltia got to his feet. Don't ever do that again. You told me to really try. I told you to try to hit me in the face, not cheap shot me. You must follow instructions during training, otherwise we'll never get anywhere. As you wish, Jonathan said. Let's try it again. Jonathan trained for the rest of the afternoon. He learned quickly that he didn't like Deltia very much, and nor did Deltia like him. It wasn't even that he was particularly cruel to Jonathan either, but that he simply wasn't a very good person at heart. 
Regardless, Jonathan did as asked and attacked or defended when instructed. Deltia was persistent and driven, forcing Jonathan to lift the heaviest blocks in the yard. Several of the other members of the hall noticed Jonathan's growing plight when they saw him carrying the Alondron equivalent to the earthen weight of 200 kilograms over his head. Jonathan didn't know how much he'd been lifting until later that night when Mahat and two others sat around him at the table in the courtyard and explained what they saw. I had no idea I was lifting that much. Jonathan looked around the room for Deltia. He was eating elsewhere. What could Jonathan do? Deltia had authority over him, and to defy that authority would be frowned upon by Dartus and his other superiors. The rules of this world seemed so tedious. Pleasing the Ainane rulers felt impossible. He didn't seem to be having any trouble lifting that amount, one of the other men at the table by the burning bonfire remarked. He had introduced himself as Lun. He had long locks of blonde hair and brown eyes. The other man was Suve. He had blue eyes and long red hair that was pulled back into a ponytail. Everyone at the table looked like they were well on their way to becoming bodybuilders. It doesn't make it okay to have him carry that kind of weight, Mahat insisted. His first day? No, that's harsh. Maybe he's being punished for ripping Jorez apart, Suve suggested. Or maybe he's just a ruthless bastard, Jonathan said. His words were proven true the next day. When Jonathan woke, it was raining across the city of Dartus. A misty fog had settled over the dock and intermingled between the city streets. Horse-drawn carriages filled the alleys and passageways bustling in and out of the market district. The whole town was alive with trade and traffic. People walked the streets and vendors pushed carts through the busier areas. There came a knock at his door. When Jonathan answered, Deltia was standing there. Good morning, Jonathan. No vende for you. We have a match in three days for which we must prepare. It's raining outside. And? He glared at Jonathan. I'll get ready, Jonathan said. Ten minutes later, he was standing in the rain holding a practice sword in each hand. Across from him, Deltia was preparing to initiate what he believed would be the roughest spar Jonathan had ever experienced. After sparring with Balor, he didn't think that would be possible, but Deltia was something else. He was much faster than Balor. Their practice swords clashed, Deltia forcing Jonathan back with vengeful determination. The rain pelted their shoulders as Deltia drove him across the sparring ground between the sparring posts designed for independent training. Jonathan defended himself well at first, but then Deltia pushed him farther, moved faster. He had not believed that anyone could be faster than him. Deltia's blades cut between his until he felt them reach his ribs, his sternum, his sides, his abs. He was beating the living shit out of Jonathan an hour in. Mahat and the others peered out from the windows of the hall, watching Jonathan fight for his life as Deltia slapped him in the head, bludgeoned him in the legs, beat him on the neck, and struck him on the arms. His whole body felt tenderized when he fell to one knee. Deltia fluidly hit Jonathan across the face with the flat of the practice sword, knocking him down. Jonathan balled his fist as he lifted his bruised skull from the mud. He pushed himself up to his knee as he took hold of the practice swords. Deltia turned to face him. Jonathan glared at him, his eyes dark with rage. The sky stormed around them. Now we're getting somewhere. Get up and fight me, Jonathan. I know you have it. I know you're just as angry as I am. Now prove it. Deltia screamed through the rain. Jonathan rushed him. Deltia defended himself with only one practice sword as Jonathan attacked. The champions of the hall exited the building to crowd around and watch as the two became a blur of clashing blades. 
With the first break in Deltia's defense, Jonathan landed a kick in Deltia's stomach, blowing him back. He stumbled but didn't fall. Jonathan moved in. Deltia pushed back, using both weapons now. Using Balor's disarm technique, Jonathan got the practice swords out of Deltia's hands at the cost of one of his own. Jonathan held up his remaining practice sword to Deltia in triumph. What are you waiting for? Strike me! The fight isn't over until one of us is down, Deltia called. Jonathan did as he was instructed and moved to strike Deltia. There was a flash of fire, and then Jonathan was twenty yards away from Deltia at the edge of the shelf with a giant burning hole in his leather chest guard. The flesh beneath it bubbled and burned as the falling rain quenched the fire. Deltia turned and made his way inside the building. Inside the hall, Jonathan sat at a table in the cafeteria as Mahat helped bandage his chest. What the hell was that? Jonathan asked. I've heard of people using spirit energy at times, Mahat said. People have won using it, but they always get disqualified because it's like cheating if the other person doesn't know. Does this guy have a stick up his ass or what? I know his daddy's a duke. They're a pretty big family in Dartus. They've been here since the city's founding. What happened to you? Lon asked. He placed a plate of fruit on the table and sat down next to them. Deltia beat the shit out of him, said Mahat. With most of the people I've fought, said Jonathan, I've quickly been able to adjust and modify my style to retaliate against them. I never reached the pinnacle of Deltia's knowledge and skill. He reminds me of me, Mahat chuckled. Don't worry, it will come. It takes everyone a while to acclimate to this lifestyle. Jonathan nodded and finished his dinner. He spent an hour in the library, perusing the books before going to bed. He had another long day of getting the life drained out of him starting after breakfast the next morning. 6. Ryan and Clara made their way across the plains of Ire. When they had woke that morning, Juan and all his things were gone. He had slipped away without waking them. Ryan had been in a foul mood since he found out. Clara had tried to consolidate him by explaining that it was easier for all of them if Juan left without notice. No one wants to say goodbye. Ryan thought that was a form of denial, an insult to his and Clara's intelligence and capability to accept one another's decisions. They continued making their way until they overcame a crest and saw a vast city resting upon the plain below. There was a forest to the west. To avoid notice, the two passed into the wood and eventually came upon a relaxing forest path. The sun gleamed through the trees as it continued its descent into the late afternoon. I figured we'd have been secluded enough to set up earlier, but that city was in the way. We need a place considerably farther away from the Alondron populace, Clara sighed. We need to find more supplies, at least something with which to sharpen our knives, Ryan said, surveying the trees. Ever since the fall, he had been able to sense things that he never could before. He didn't even know what he was sensing, but it was a form of heightened awareness that extended to every part of his body. He could see farther and hear things from farther away. He could see colors and people, emotions, drives, their spirit energy. Clara had noticed things as well. She frequently scraped her knees or cut herself on barbs of bramble crossing the path. There was pain, but the wound didn't last longer than an hour. There were no scars, and the scars that she'd accrued on Earth had vanished. Something she had noticed but hadn't mentioned to Ryan, during their last visit to an Alondron city, before they deemed it too dangerous to mingle with the natives, she would attempt to communicate with the Alondrons. The moment she started speaking, they became entranced by her every word but that was only half of this newly discovered skill. 
Before Juan left, she had noticed several rogue guards investigating one of their fires and had literally warded them away. She imagined an explosion far in the distance behind the approaching guards. Sure enough, a loud boom echoed from across the land behind them. The road guards turned around to look, and when they turned back, they didn't see Clara, Ryan, or Juan. They also seemed to have forgotten why they moved to investigate in the first place. She had tried to formulate an explanation for it, but could think of nothing more than that she might have some form of psychic manipulation over another's visual cortex. The two continued until they entered a clearing. Within the middle of the green grove, bathed in the afternoon sunlight, stood a large cathedral. The place reeked. They hadn't intended to get any closer, but then they noticed the dead bodies littering the area. The smell became unbearable. As they were passing the courtyard, Clara saw it. Her eyes widened and she stopped dead in her tracks. Ryan noticed and paused alongside her. Is that what I think it is? Clara asked. I see it too, Ryan said. Sitting within the courtyard of the cathedral, surrounded by five guards bearing the colors of Shirasa, lay one of their hawks from the Enigma. The guards seemed to be investigating the ship, trying to figure it out. The odd part was that the canopy of the vehicle had been torn off completely. How do you think they ripped the canopy off? Clara wondered. I was just thinking about that. These people don't possess the tools to cause that kind of damage. They can't be allowed to figure out our technology, Clara said. Besides, there's a chance that we may be able to connect to the Enigma network to get someone out here to pick us up. What do you intend to do about them? They outnumber us. They already know too much. We need to kill them, Clara nodded. Kill? Are you sure you're capable of that? Ryan whispered. They are, she said. They've killed plenty of us for no reason. It goes both ways, but at least we have a good excuse. We're talking about killing the natives. That's a really sour move, Ryan said. We don't have a choice. Other survivors have taken fate into their own hands. Those soldiers can't live to tell others about that ship. We can't move that ship and it's not operational to fly, Ryan said. That's not what's important. Making sure no one finds anything out is. Understand? Clara narrowed her eyes on Ryan's. I do. Once again, we're outnumbered and they're well armed. But we have the element of surprise and a few tricks we've learned, said Clara. Here's what we'll do. Nearby, beneath the city of Shirasa, an influx of new prisoners, survivors of the Enigma that had been shipped from Chryseus, were herded into the Shirazan slush pit. Chance Trelion was among them. Before he had been captured in Enigma Station, Chance had managed to grab a communicator and remain in contact with William Mason until the guards conducted a search within the docks of Dartus. He was able to let him know that Enigma Station had fallen and that they were on their way to Shirasa. William had been running one of the remaining Falcons back and forth between Meacham and Enigma Station for supply runs. As Chance watched his people congregate with the violent creatures from the underbelly of the Londron Society, he hoped that someone might be able to help them out of this nightmare. Their fate lay within William's hands. Nittle, Bivol, Vu, Groby, Shinloader stood around the strange object feeling dumbfounded. None of them had a clue as to what the thing did, but they'd been asked to investigate the area, so they were going to spend a good amount of time acting like they were doing just that. The thing about technology is that it looks unfathomably complicated to the untrained eye. They knew it involved a seat of sorts, they knew it was used as some form of travel, and that was pretty much it. This is a waste of time, Vu crossed his arms. 
The heat of the sun in the afternoon was beginning to make them sweat beneath their armor even though the harsh wind would blow now and then, making them shiver. Yes, but if we don't look like we made a conscious effort to figure it out, then Hedger will know and he won't give us our pay, Loder said, examining the dashboard of the ship. Grobish looked beyond the arches of the wall surrounding the courtyard toward the trees, hearing something. Bivol slid out from under the exposed part of the vessel. This thing's sealed. We could get in if we crafted the tools, but it would take a long time. Niddle had been checking out the tail and thrusters. It all looked like parts of a giant puzzle he was too stupid to figure out. How hard would it be to haul this thing back to Shirasa? It'd take all of us, said Loder as he climbed out of the ship. It'd probably take all day. Help! A woman called. All five of them turned around and looked toward the cry. A woman dressed in a tattered travel cloak emerged from the brush beyond the courtyard archways. Somebody, please, she panted. The guards hurried over to her as she climbed through one of the arches and dropped into the courtyard. What's the matter? Bivol asked. Are you hurt? Loder asked as he helped her up by the arm. Beneath her cloak, she wore a navy blue vest over a white blouse. She was royalty. My name is Clara Wallace, and I'm the duchess of a large school based in Cathra. I was on my way to visit the site of our new location in Northern Ire when my cart was attacked and my driver killed. I only barely got away. Where is your cart? Loder held up a hand. Which route? I, I can't remember, she stammered. Well, that doesn't help anyone. Now does it? Grobish waved. Calm down, Grobish, Loder said. Grobish breathed and shook his head. He noticed the man clambering into the ship behind him. What is this? He took a few steps and then broke into a run toward Ryan, who was having trouble withdrawing the pistol from the inner door of the vessel. Pival, Niddle, and Vu hurried after him as Loder rounded on Clara. Is this some sort of diversion? I... She didn't have time before Ryan kicked one of the guards in the face, causing Loder to turn away. Son of a bitch! Loder yelled. Wait! Clara grabbed his arm. Loder looked at her, her hand on his arm, and then looked into her eyes. His shoulders went lax and his attention seemed to center only around her in that moment. A devilish plan crossed into Clara's mind. I want you to kill the men attacking my friend. They look like guards, but they're bandits in disguise. You're the only one who can help us. Loder looked over his shoulder to the struggle as, to him, four men dressed in Cherizan armor were ruthlessly assaulting a civilian hanging out of the strange vehicle. Loder slid his blade from his sheath as he walked toward the men. He pulled one of them off the civilian and ran his blade through his stomach. Nittle gaped at Loder in horror as the others turned around. What are you doing? Vu began to draw his sword, but Loder slashed his blade across his throat before he could. Bival rushed him. Loder planted his blade in his belly as Bival fell over him in a hug. Grobish managed to get his sword out before Loder could shove Bival off, but Ryan finally got the pistol free. He pointed the gun's nozzle at Grobish's head and fired. Blood splattered everywhere as surreal realizations struck Loder. He had murdered his own men for virtually no reason. The spell was broken, but it was too late. Ryan turned the pistol point on Loder and ended him as well. Ryan fell back against the seat of the ship, speckles of red covering his face. What did you do? He panted as Clara gawked at the carnage she'd helped in sight. I just told the man his men were bandits trying to attack us. He didn't hesitate for an instant. It's like, in his eyes, I couldn't be telling a lie. Well, problem solved. We've got the ship and no witnesses, Ryan said. We also have five different sized Shrees and Guard uniforms. It comes with a difficult price, Clara said. How do you mean? 
Ryan asked. Part of staying under the radar is to make sure no one knows about us. These guards were sent to investigate this ship, ordered by a superior who will wonder why his men never returned. That's a blip on the radar. So what do you propose we do? Don the garb of the guard and go tell their manager in a guard tower somewhere in Shirasa that his men went AWOL? That's exactly what we do, but first... Clara grabbed the manual communicator from the dashboard of the ship. Let's see who's listening. William Mason sat in the padded leather seat of the Falcon. He watched the navigation map as the Falcon passed over the continent that everyone had come to know as Ire. The thrusters dropped to 25% and the ship lugged to a steady land speed. He descended through the clouds as he approached the city of Shirasa. A flickering communicator light flashed on the communications part of the dashboard. William hit the button and listened. Clara Wallace of the Starship Enigma communicating via Hawk Manual Communicator. Does anyone read? Clara Wallace of the Starship Enigma. Does anyone read? William switched on his communicator as he piloted the freighter. This is William Mason of the Starship Enigma, en route for Shirasa of Ire. I read you loud and clear, Clara. Do you need assistance? We need to get to Shirasa. We're not far. Clara's voice crackled over the communicator. Are you aware that Shirasa is the town where at least 600 survivors of Enigma Station have been transferred? Silence followed his question for a second. That is not something we were aware of, Clara said. Maybe we can help each other out. We have a pile of Shirazan guard uniforms here. We were going to take care of some official business, but nothing says fun like a prison break. Where are you? William asked. At a cathedral about 45 miles northwest of Shirasa. I'll find it. Stay where you are. Ten minutes later, they heard the thrusters of an earthen spacecraft thunder over the tree line. The falcon hovered overhead, bending the tallest, thickest trees around as it descended in the field on the north side of the cathedral. Clara and Ryan met William as he lowered the loading dock door. William had grown a full beard and mustache. He wore a Kevlar vest over his blue, long-sleeved shirt from the Enigma, and carried a holster with a forty-four pistol around his waist. His brown eyes were filled with determination as he shook both their hands. How have you fared? he asked. Better than most, obviously, said Clara. Enigma Station has fallen. I keep reading that everyone's getting captured and killed. Yes, the Alondrons and their death matches. It's like Rome all over again, William said. What business did you have in Shirasa? Before I tell you that, I have to explain that we're about to do things very differently, and that means I need your support 100%, William. Do I have that? Clara asked. What do you mean? William wrinkled his brow. I mean, from now on, I want you to fly for me, not for Meacham or anyone else. I suppose that's doable, so long as I'll be allowed to continue assisting distress calls. I get about six a day, and it keeps me busy. You will, but instead of assisting individually, you'll be helping assist me globally. I have a plan to form a new city, but I intend to break into the Alondron Tax and Records Office in Shirasa and put our city on the map officially as an Alondron town. We find a position to do this, and we set up a visual so that when the Alondrons come to collect our city's taxes, we look no different from them. They won't attack what they think is theirs. Good plan, except the Tax and Records Office is probably going to be in Narsus, as that's the capital city of Ire. I'll tell you what. You help me spring a few hundred people from Shirasa, and I'll help you get to Narsus to set up your town, William proposed. Sounds like a deal. We have to tie up some loose ends in Shirasa anyway, Clara said. 
William helped Clara carry the equipment from the bodies of the soldiers while Ryan started taking every functional electronic device from Joel's fallen hawk and loaded it onto the Falcon. Once everything had been salvaged and all that remained was the empty shell of the vessel, the three took panels from the hawk and began to dig. It was nearly dark by the time they finished digging a hole large enough to encompass the hawk, but they had no choice but to destroy the evidence. They hauled the bodies of the five guards and all the bodies they could find surrounding the cathedral into the hole with the hawk. They then spent the last of the remaining light burying the ship. We're done here, William said as the three made their way for the freighter nearby. The three boarded the ship and William navigated them to a mountain flat he had seen earlier so he could set the ship down without being noticed for the night. First thing tomorrow, said Clara, we don the guard armor and... I don't think you should come with us, Clara, William interrupted. These people aren't going to listen to any woman, and you'll blow our cover if we walk in with you by our side. Th this is my idea, Clara stammered as she watched William from one of the side control panels. No one's denying that it's your idea. We just can't let you come with us. You understand why, right? William asked. We're not trying to oppress you, but the Elandrons haven't yet passed the hurdle where women are equal to men. Earth is very progressive by comparison to Elandronon. I do understand, but... Oh, fine. I'll stay behind for Shirasa, but I get to lead in Narsus, Clara resigned. That should work, said Ryan. You know more about what you want to do there than we do, William shrugged. Besides, we're going to need a pilot to touch down in the upper market square once we reach the surface. We're going to have to fight our way that far if possible, but I don't think we can get out of the city with how many guards are on the upper story. The Defringo will be our relief point. I can do that. Clara said. Sounds like a plan. William kicked his seat around and got up. He walked to the kitchen area of the Inner Falcon and took three metal cups from a cabinet and a bottle of whiskey from another. We should check out soon, he said, pouring each of them a glass. Clara and Ryan each took one. Two better days ahead. They raised their glasses. And luck for tomorrow, Ryan added. The three nodded and drank. 7. Lydia left the bar half-drunk. She wanted nothing more than to go home and sleep or puke, or do a combination of both. After stumbling into a trash can, Lydia forced herself to walk straight and try not to look drunk. Someone emerged from the alley and pulled her into the shadows. Hello, Lydia, Friend said. Oh, Friend, why won't you just leave me alone? You know I'm not interested. I'm afraid I simply can't do that. You belong to me, Lydia, Friend said. Lydia felt him stroking her hair as he held her tight. She felt for her knife beneath her cloak. Where it should have been was nothing more than a soft, empty space, meaning she had either forgotten it at home or lost it in her drunken haze. Frint's words wormed their way into Lydia's skull. Several other shadows emerged from the darkness. The world was still a daze, but she knew she had to escape. Lydia elbowed Frint in the stomach and pattered through the damp streets. She knew she was being chased as heavy bootfalls clinked behind her. She ran through an empty market square. Like a monkey, Lydia jumped to a wooden podium at the far wall of the square and climbed to the second story. Someone cussed beneath her and she heard the footsteps move for the stairwell. Lydia climbed to one of the rooftops nearby and jogged the route toward her part of town. From the dark mist outside of her zone of familiarity, a hand grappled her arm. She came to an abrupt halt in the hands of a roof guard. You're not supposed to be here. Lydia shoved the man back. In his break of contact, she kneed the guard in the groin. 
Bouncing off the wall behind the guard, Lydia kicked off the guard's back and pulled herself up to the third story of the rooftops. Free of obstruction, Lydia returned to her home. When you leave this afternoon, Jonathan, I don't ever want to see your face here again, Jonathan's father said to him as Jonathan stood in the doorway to the kitchen. He had been preparing to leave for college over the last six weeks, and his father hadn't said a word. It was clear then that he thought of Jonathan's decision as a betrayal. He needed help. The government had bought off all of his ranch hands and assistants. Being one of the last independent farmers in the world, he had little of the funds required to maintain the farm. It had become a kind of game to Matthew Tabith. He wanted to see how long he could last, being one man versus the world. He had made the mistake of believing that family would always be there to help him. He had already driven Jonathan's mother away. You never belonged here, he said, sipping a glass of scotch as he sat at the kitchen table beneath the fluorescent bulb radiating overhead. Beyond the window, the sky outside looked dark and ominous, threatening rain beyond the glass dome overhead. You were like your mother. Weak, he sipped, putting your head in those damn books all the time like nothing outside matters. You're drunk again. Jonathan said, determining not to back down this time. He clutched the strap to his backpack and his hand at his side. His father got to his feet. You think age makes a man? It doesn't. A man makes himself into a man, and you're not a man. You never will be, no matter how hard you try. Jonathan said nothing. It's that, Matthew Tabith scoffed, that passive-aggressive attitude you got from your mother. I am my mother's son. You're the only one who seems to have a problem with that. Fortunately for me, it doesn't matter anymore. You were a shit father anyway. I did everything for you. His father glared at him with the stern lines of rage etched into his withered face. The expression was timeless, something that may as well have been carved into marble for the years of anger that Matthew Tabith held so close. It had cost him his family. Those wrinkles and curls in his brow, the definition lines of disgust in the cheeks, the taut sneer of his nose between his cheekbones. It was the expression Jonathan would adapt in later years as the rage his father had instilled in him was ruptured by the planet of Alondranon. I fed you three times for every single day you slept under my roof with food that I grew with my own two hands. We had everything, but it was never enough. We're not your pets. We can't be put in a cage and tended to at your leisure. Ungrateful bastard. Matthew shook his head and walked toward him. He was old, tired, and sick with the secret of cancer that he would take to his grave four years later. I'm not a boy anymore. You may not think of me as a man, but I'm not a boy, Jonathan said. You will never be a man, Matthew repeated. Jonathan remembered all of this as he watched the sand slip between his fingers the sun sparkling across the grains like glitter as it dried his flesh. He stood across from Ashteg the Terrible, a beefy man in chain mail and chain leggings with ridiculous-looking ornate clan tattoos on his face. Jonathan missed the announcement for the battle to begin. He thought of his father and how much he hated the man, how much he wished he had punched him in the face. The last of the sand drained from his fingers. Ashteg was almost upon him, and Jonathan hadn't even raised his sword. The rage trembled into his fingers. The man, Ashtag, blundered forth, but Jonathan only saw Matthew Tabith's sneering hatred. Ashtag swung at him. 
Jonathan ducked and put his left fist into Ashtag's stomach. Ashtag doubled over. Jonathan put his hand on his chest and pushed him back. He could have ended it, but Deltia told him never to end an opponent quickly in the arena unless challenged to do so. The crowd went crazy as Jonathan moved toward the man, his eyes seething with bloody yearning. The roar of the audience became nothing more than a dull pounding in Jonathan's ears. Ashtag was the most unfortunate man in the world right now. You wouldn't know it with the smile on his tattooed face, or the way he curled his fingers around his axe with anticipation. He had only won three Virago matches. Usually if a Harris can get three victories out of a Preilus, the prisoner will be considered worth his initial cost. Ashtag would never see four victories. Jonathan blocked Ashtag's strike with the solid thrust of his blade. Ashtag dropped the axe down for a side lash, but Jonathan caught the swipe with his sword and kicked him back. Ashtag's rolls of fat bounced as he stumbled. The crowd called for Jonathan to finish him. Who was he to deny his audience a show? Jonathan jumped onto Ashtag's chest, sending him flailing backward. Jonathan stabbed him through the chest five times as he went down like a fallen tree. The people in the stands rejoiced as Jonathan took the shield mounted on the inside wall of the equipment alcove. Two other warriors walked from the Virago entrance to the field. Jonathan waited for his second to walk out, but no one came. Dr. Del Cam stood up from the podium overseeing the Defringo and held up his hand to quiet the crowd. He wore a flowing blue robe and had silver armlets wrapping his forearms down to both wrists. Once the volume dropped to a reasonable level, Del Cam began. The preliminary rounds of this year's games have officially begun. Champions will define themselves here today and for the rest of the year. Let our aspiring hero show his skills when the odds aren't in his favor. He sat down. Jonathan's two opponents gathered their equipment before readying themselves adjacent to him. He raised his sword as Del Cam gave the signal for them to begin. Weak. His father's voice echoed into his mind. Helpless. Jonathan closed his eyes, allowing the roar of the crowd to dissolve in a euphoric thunder of sound. You will never be a man. He opened his eyes as the first challenger reached him and slammed his sword onto Jonathan's shield. Jonathan slapped him back with the shield, turned and then fired a kick with such tremendous force that the man rocketed backward, losing his longsword before he tumbled to a stop seventy yards away from Jonathan with every single rib broken. The crowd awed. The second challenger gaped at Jonathan as Jonathan brought his sword down upon his hammer. The end of Jonathan's sword broke off, but it didn't matter. With the remaining edge of his sword, Jonathan forced his opponent down to his knees. Jonathan proceeded to beat the life out of the second man. Finishing, Jonathan released the rickety, bloodied corpse to the sand. He tossed the hilt of the sword aside and walked to the center of the arena, spreading his arms intimidatingly toward the octor. They wanted blood, he would give it to them. Tell me I'm not a man now, you dead son of a bitch, he whispered to himself. Octor Del Cam didn't look pleased. Jonathan had finished the round in less than 30 seconds. Impressive, yes, but not very good for the audience or their supply of opponents for such a powerful foe. Jonathan saw Del Cam beckon his assistant over and say something into his ear. The assistant nodded and quickly hurried off. Octor Del Cam returned his impartial gaze to Jonathan. Jonathan paced, watching the crowd as an apparent interruption was in process. The sound of drums filled the stadium. Torches burst into life upon the marble pillars jutting up from the sand. The earth began to shake beneath Jonathan's feet. The pillars slid away from the middle of the arena. 
A grate fell over the equipment alcove, and it slid into the wall nearby. The side doors opened, and hundreds of topless dancers danced their way around the edge of the arena. The audience seemed to appreciate the sentiment. Once the last of the dancers had filed off the field, the ground rumbled again. Jonathan watched Dr. Del Cam watching him. The sand began to seep through the ground near the middle of the field as a giant compartment door slid apart. Jonathan kicked one of his previous opponent's swords into his hand and walked backwards out of the way. The pillars on the sides of the arena moved to the corners of the field and slid higher into the sky. Between the pillars on Jonathan's left, a wall of translucent blue snapped into existence. The same thing happened on his three other sides. The blue energy also cut across the void of opening in Shirasa's undercity ceiling. He was trapped. The crowd had turned into a riot of positive emotion. Within the cylindrical pit that the compartment doors had created in their absence, the twisted copper head of a massive reptile entered the arena alongside a chain and post. As it raised into the arena, it became larger. Enormous yellow wings were folded against its back as it remained at a crouch. The platform came to a halt on level with the field. Jonathan hadn't noticed, but his own jaw had dropped. He was staring into the blood-red eyes of a dragon. It twitched its head at Jonathan and took a huge step with a fat yellow claw, sending a tremor through the ground. Jonathan looked to Del Cam. He sneered back at Jonathan without sympathy. He had just sentenced Jonathan to execution. The dragon's wings exploded outward, giving it the appearance of being significantly larger. Blood red lined the inner parts of the dragon's coloring. The chain around its neck broke and coiled to the ground as the dragon was released to feed. It rocked back and forth as it waddled over the field toward Jonathan like a giant chicken. A disconnect ran through Jonathan's brain as he watched the monstrous lizard advance on him. A fear that he did not understand ran through his skin like electricity, sending signals to his brain to flee at all cost. The wings flapped up as the dragon reared back, becoming three times as large. It then threw the sails of its wings. The wind billowed dust and grit through Jonathan, pushing him down on his ass. The creature towered overhead, blocking out the sun shining from above, its eyes glowing red from its silhouette against the sky. He could do nothing as the dragon's long neck darted. Jonathan felt the jarring impact. One moment he was sitting on the arena floor, and the next, he and the sand of the arena were inside the dragon's narrow mouth. A line of gargantuan sharp teeth tore through the sand on Jonathan's left as a thick forked tongue snaked to the roof of the mouth. It pushed him to the line of the other teeth as they began to fall. The sand, muddied and mixed with saliva, slipped around Jonathan's form as he managed to slide under the dragon's tongue momentarily as he tried to chew him up. The weight of his blade knocked into his side. He grappled the sword. The dragon's tongue attempted to force him into the teeth line again. Jonathan stabbed it in the tongue. Jonathan, covered with mud and saliva, flew from the dragon's mouth, on fire, into the electric wall. It shocked him and knocked him to the ground. He lay there, hissing, his leather chest piece smoldering. This fight wasn't going well. The dragon looked furious as it chewed nothing and cocked its head, staring at Jonathan with a need for vengeance. Fire erupted from its nostrils with each angered breath as it stammered forward. Jonathan saw it suck in a huge amount of air and rear back. Jonathan grabbed his sword and saw his shield. He dove for it. A wall of fire and heat billowed over the spot where Jonathan had just been, transforming the sand to glass. Jonathan hooked his hand into his shield and turned in time for the dragon to focus its breath on him. He crouched behind his shield as fire tore around him. 
Searing heat boiled the flesh of his arm as the shield melted to the charred, skeletal wooden frame that had constructed its form. Jonathan screamed in pain as the heat of hell scorched through him. The dragon's fire breath ceased, its lung capacity depleted. Shaking with fury, Jonathan threw the smoldering shield aside. The dragon snapped at him again, snake-like. This time, before it could strike, Jonathan grabbed hold of its nose and forced his fist into its nostril. The dragon whipped its neck back and threw Jonathan straight up into the air. The crowd was going wild below as Jonathan cartwheeled through the sky. As he fell, he saw the dragon's mouth open, a dual set of razor teeth greeting him. Transforming himself into a bullet, Jonathan fired straight down the dragon's gullet. Adrenaline drowned his fear. He stabbed his sword through the dragon's inner throat. He had to push with all his might. Once he felt the relief, Jonathan slashed. Precious light met him as he cut through the dragon's throat and tumbled toward the sand. The audience drew breath in amazement. Rancid dragon blood covered him from head to toe as the dragon flailed in horror of its impending death. It set its sights for Jonathan. Jonathan's heel struck the hammer that had belonged to one of his previous contenders. He grabbed it in his offhand and raised it just in time to deflect a strike as the dragon pawed him. It hooked its nails around the hammer hilt and chucked the hammer away. It struck again. Jonathan cut its claw with his sword. It continued to paw at him, but Jonathan maimed it each time. It drew its head back again. As it lowered its head to breathe its fire breath all over him, Jonathan dove forward and rolled beneath its initial trajectory. Fire billowed above his back from the dragon's nose and mouth, including a stream flowing from the hole in the thing's throat. He tumbled to a stance, stabbing his blade into the dragon's stomach where it remained before the dragon lifted its gigantic foot to crush him. He dropped to one knee as the dragon's foot came down. To the audience, there was no sound or smash, although the foot seemed to have crushed Jonathan. Weakened by physical trauma, the dragon's thigh and stomach shook. It winced, squeezing its eyes closed as its leg was forced upward. Jonathan, glaring determinedly at the field from beneath the dragon's great foot with his arms raised high, lifted a portion of the full weight of the creature. He twisted and pulled, feeling and hearing bones in the dragon's thigh popping. The dragon lifted off the ground and landed on its back as Jonathan threw all the weight from his shoulders. It looked pathetic and unimpressive, sprawled helplessly on its side. Jonathan found his sword protruding from the belly of the creature. He yanked it out and walked to the spot on the dragon's neck where he had torn out. Hacking through the remaining part of the dying creature's gullet, Jonathan gripped the thorny spinal cord and broke its thorny head from its body. The audience went into a state of audible ecstasy as Jonathan lifted the head and tossed it toward the base of Delcam's podium. He then walked off the field. A tray of dishes flew down the corridor leading from the speaker's podium to the royal corridor, breaking across the floor and shattering beyond recognition once they struck the far wall. Dr. Del Cam walked sullenly down the path around the broken glass with his two servants and petite wife Helga following along behind him. It wasn't the first time a Prelis had defeated an obese baby dragon, but success was so rare that he got used to not having to pay prisoners after its release. However, for Jonathan's survival... Dulcam now owed a significant weight of shards to Dartus and his Hall of Champions, especially since he had bet Zekin that Dartus's new man wouldn't live throughout the day. He didn't find Zekin, Zekin found him. As they entered the royal corridor, Zekin, a kind-faced man with a stubble beard and earnest green eyes, entered the hall. He saw Dulcam before he could get to the seclusion of his flat. A lovely day for bets and gambles between chums, or perhaps quite the opposite for some. 
Zekin chuckled as he eyed Delcam's wife. I believe you owe me close to three times the amount we agreed upon? His voice rose in question. You will have your shard, Zekin. I am a man of my word, Delcam said. I do not speak to deny that, but I would barter for a different boon if I may. Delcam watched Zekin warily. Go on. The price you owe waived for an evening with your eldest daughter. Fury sparked like a wildfire through Delcam's upper torso. His fingers shook. He was going to punch Zekin today. He said that to himself every time he saw Zekin, but today he meant to procrastinate no longer. Helga's fingers curled around his arm, cooling the intensity building inside of him. It was enough to reconsider Zekin's offer. Jezbel had just seen her 17th birthday, and she remained pure, collateral for a financial disaster that had not yet occurred. He could afford to pay Zekin for the wager they had constructed, but the price was close to the worth of his first estate. Paying out would leave him vulnerable for further potential woes. Delcam didn't have much in the way of choice. I'd be lying if I didn't find insult in your offer, but the weight of shards outweighs the security of keeping a fresh, untouched daughter clean in spite of her frequent adolescent urges. I will give you her purity if it is what you desire, in exchange for bets rendered prior to our conversation here. I will see it so, should you be so generous. Delcam nodded, chewing his jaw and thought the way he did after striking a bargain of some kind. Bring her by in the morning and I will have her return to you in the morning of the following day. The two parted. Delcam started back to his flat. Jespel will be pleased at last, Helga said. By the shit-eater, Zekin. If not for Dartus and his new dog, we could sell her for twice the worth. There's still Cespel. In another four years, she'll be worth as much as Jespel. We can only hope that she'll have more semblance of her mother and less of me, Dulcam growled. The two met the door to his apartment and entered. 8. Ryan and William emerged from the wood wearing the Cherise and Guard uniforms. They stood on the vista that peered over the wall to Shirasa. The rooftops and buildings beyond were bathed in golden afternoon sunlight. A set of stone steps led down the cliff to the field where a trail led to the main road to the city. Just remember, said William, you're Grobish and I'm Loader. You really think they won't recognize us? Ryan asked. They might. However, if these were just lowly guards at the bottom of the chain, their faces aren't likely to jog anyone's memory. There's another problem. Are you able to speak the Alondron tongue? I've done it pretty well. Don't know how, but when I talk to them, they seem to understand me. Nobody knows how we can understand the Alondrons, but everybody seems to figure it out at about the same rate. The more we speak, the more we sound like them, William said. It's hard for me to communicate the language without hearing them talk first, Ryan said. Me too, but we have to get in and out as quickly as possible. They met with the main road and made their way to the west gate of Shirasa. The guards stationed by the entrance were laughing at them before they could come completely into view. It was too late to turn around, so they had to keep moving forward. What happened to your horse this time, Grobish? One of them asked. Ryan and William approached warily. The attention wasn't ideal, but the fiction seemed to be in order. They met with the steps and began to climb. Captain Trilo was expecting you back yesterday, said the other gate guard. Where's the rest of your group? Took off, William said simply. He hadn't been communicating enough yet to speak comfortably to anyone in the position of authority. And your name? The left asked as both guards stepped to block the threshold. Loader, William replied. You were the leader of this group. 
Trila will be expecting a detailed explanation of where and why your group deserted you. All right, William said. The guards looked to one another, fighting back laughter. Go on, then. The right one said seriously and stepped aside. William and Ryan quickly entered the city. They walked the winding path through the channel, seeing lily pads and water flowers jutting from the ornamental waters alongside the main street. They passed a large fountain with a Poseidon-esque merman statue ushering the waves through the city foyer and entered the market bazaar. Any idea where the guard station might be? Ryan asked as they descended the steps to the marketplace. When I was scouting with the survivors from Meacham, we figured a lot of stuff out about the Alondron cities. The guards are actually based out of the capital of each country and distributed amidst the allied cities. Every city has a guard tower at the southwest corner of town, William said, following the path that fed into the wall that led to the south side of the city. They still have dedicated armies, right? Ryan wondered. Based on our evaluations, each city has a native army, and then there are the guards that protect the cities. They're connected to a kind of government that oversees everything from the capital. There are road guards that move along the main roads at any given time, day or night. So it's primitive earth about the medieval era. William glanced at Ryan before they entered a tunnel leading to the southwest, rounding the outer edge of the city. We have reason to believe that there have been several periods of civilization that advanced throughout this planet's history, even some that have gone so far as to achieve space travel. How far they went is still unknown to us, but in our short time of exploring we've discovered the ruins of at least three vast cities where the former inhabitants had clearly defined roads for high-capacity traffic, cities with old vehicles similar to cars, and the Mother Lode just south of Meacham, one of the largest underground cities I've ever seen. We steered clear of everything that looked like civilization after a group of us got executed in some village after we tried communicating for a few minutes. Clara, Juan, Langston, and I were the only ones who made it away from that village, Ryan said as they walked down the tunnel passage. Torches lined the walls, illuminating the path in full so as to defeat any and all shadows. Adapt and survive. That's all there is to it, said William. Come on, the guard tower is right across the street. Clara's voiceover clicked on through the communicator in each of their left ears. I'm standing by in position. Let me know when you're ready. They exited the tunnel and hurried across the cobblestone road during a break between the trade caravans headed for the markets in the upper and lower parts of the city. Several guards emerged from the tower and walked past William and Ryan without notice. The two climbed the steps and entered through the large, double wooden doors leading inside the building. Everything within was of a delusional grandeur. Red Cherisean banners draped from every archway, doorway, wall, and mantle. The carpet on the steps of the stairway leading to the upper stories matched the royal red flavor of the building. Guards in various stages of uniform ushered from desks covered with paperwork to offices with superior officers, to rooms with wooden filing cabinets. Couriers jogged from desk to desk grabbing outbound papers and occasionally dropped off packages or parcels for the guards. One of the walls displayed a massive board covered with many layers of wanted pictures. The whole place was a bustling operation for law enforcement. Grobish! Someone yelled. Ryan swallowed as one of the guard captains approached. I told you to replace that helmet! He turned to William. I don't know how you were trained in the cherry guard loader, but if I find that you didn't fill out your alpha script again, I'll be sending you to the Uvarian Mountain Mines for stationary duty. Do you understand? Yes, William answered. The guard captain grabbed a blank page and a quill and an ink bottle from someone's desk and shoved it all into William's hands. Fill it out and put it on my desk in five minutes. The two walked to the nearest vacant desk. William sat down and looked at the paper. 
It looked incomprehensible to him. While the verbal language was easy to pick up, the writing was completely different. What is this, Elvish? William whispered to Ryan. Take a picture and send it to Clara, said Ryan. The computer on the Falcon should be able to figure out the patterns and tell us what we need to know. William nodded. He looked left and right to make sure no one was looking, and then tapped the modulator on his ear. The lens popped in front of his eye and focused on the page. He focused until the page was as crisp as he could get it and captured the image. Pressing the button over the earpiece again, he switched back to the communicator. Clara, I've just sent you an image. We need it translated and filled out so I can copy it and give it to the guard captain within the next few minutes. The computer is analyzing. I'll send it back to you here in a second, she replied. The two looked around. Everyone was busy with their processes, so they didn't notice William and Ryan waiting for seemingly nothing. A moment later, William received a file. He tapped the modulator and brought up the image he had sent to Clara, except now it had a line of English written above the words on the page. In the spaces provided on the page, Clara had written in the Alondron language the replies they needed to answer. The page was actually the document they needed in order to avert attention from their situation from the previous day. Apparently, the real loader had forgotten to fill out a report explaining how many people and who he was taking for his assigned task. Under this line, Clara had written simply two, and Loader and Grobiche were the only ones listed. William copied the text she had written onto the sheet. Everything else was just information that superiors were supposed to fill out later. She had answered a few other questions with guesses. William copied everything. Everyone else who died at the cathedral will, to the Alondrons, have seemingly deserted for no apparent reason. Once he was finished, he found the guard captain's office and placed the document on his desk. The captain moved it to an obscure place on his desk without even looking at it. He handed William another sheet. Fill out your event report, and then you and Grobiche are commissioned to prison duty for the afternoon. Don't make me remind you again. Right, sir, William nodded. The man glared at him from behind his desk. Don't get cocky with me, soldier. They filled out the second document with Clara the same way. When she sent it back, they realized that it was an incident report based on a series of undercover agents that had been deployed within the ranks of the thieves of Shirasa Forest. Instead of explaining what really happened, she said that when they got there, the bodies of the missing bandit agents had mysteriously disappeared. Further investigation in and around the cathedral didn't yield anything more. However, she indicated that they found tracks leading toward the mountain nearby. After putting the document on the captain's desk, William received more paperwork. One sheet was Loader's next assignment, prison duty for the remainder of his shift. The other was his alpha script. He sent both to Clara and filled out a few names for the sake of the act so they didn't get called out before they could leave. On their way out, Ryan grabbed a map from the edge of someone's desk. Where are you going, Loader? The two stopped in their tracks as they made for the door. The volume of chatter throughout the room dropped as their guard captain stood in the doorway to his office, glaring at them. They could feel the eyes of the unsuspecting Alondrons on them. Prison's down the hall this way. Don't forget your keys again. Amine, he swore and turned around to enter his office. Every year they get stupider. And change that damn helmet, Grobiche. William and Ryan made for the prison door. A guard with a smirk on his face slipped a different helmet into Ryan's hands. Ryan took off his helmet and put the other one on. When he looked down, there was a giant gash in the front that had apparently happened before the real Grobiche's death. He put the defunct helmet on the shelf as they approached a barred door preceding a stone stairwell leading into the depths of the city prison. Taking one of the twelve sets of keys hanging from nails to the left of the bars, William opened the door and allowed Ryan to enter. Leaving the vicinity of the other guards put their nerves at ease. 
air became colder as they descended the spiral staircase. This is actually going better than I expected, Ryan said. We wouldn't have gotten this far if it had gone south even a little. We're lucky our personas were delinquent enough in life to warrant prison duty. If we can find Chance Trelion, we'll be in good standing order, William said as they dropped to a small corridor lined with torches. It led to another staircase that delved deeper into the planet's surface. Clara's voice crackled in William's ear. Make sure you let me know when your cover's blown. We're not messing around with getting our people out and I don't care who knows it. I'll sit down in the goddamn arena if I have to. If it becomes necessary that we dust off in the arena, then that's what we'll do. But let's try to stay calm and stick to the plan we came up with last night, William said. Clara gave no response. The two eventually came to the foot of a large corridor with many sub-corridors branching from the passageways connected to the four different stories. There were two guards that they could see pacing the corridors on each level above. William turned to Ryan as he tugged the visor attachment from the earpiece and drew it over his eyes. Ryan did the same with his and switched on the thermal vision. They were able to see a significant increase in the number of guards. They appeared as green holographic figures within the walls nearly as far as the eye could see. William tapped his earpiece. Turn off your communicator, he instructed Ryan. Ryan did as asked. Why? I didn't want Claire to hear, he replied, narrowing his eyes on Ryan's. We're going to have to kill a lot of people in order to get everyone out of this prison. All these green figures are going to have to drop. Are you going to be able to do this? Uh, I, stammered Ryan. I think so. Sorry, buddy, William said. He placed his hand on the side of Ryan's head. Ryan managed a quick protest before William slammed his head into the wall. Ryan collapsed in a heap on the floor, a nasty scrape bleeding from his cheek from the impact. William turned the corner. When he dropped his arms, the metal sleeves on his forearms melted in thick gobs down to solid razor-sharp sword points in each hand. William prepared himself for the genocide he would have to commit. He would have to do it quickly, methodically, rhythmically. Killing required a difficult trick of the mind. Taking the person that he was, William set that person aside and took upon himself another, that of a soldier doing his job to protect his family. It was in his blood, deep in the root of his primal being. If, after he finished, the man he had been remained, he would assume his role again without the burden of murderer upon his head. When Ryan came to, William was sitting opposite to him with his head in his hand. He was covered in blood. Ryan got to his feet and looked down the corridor. Bodies littered the hall down the passage ahead, and there were several at the foot of the stairs where they had entered. It's done, William said. You killed everyone? Ryan asked. William nodded. There are doors to the prison cells, but they take two people to open. Don't look at me like that. You knew what had to be done. But I was going to help you, Ryan protested. I wanted to limit the burden to myself. William pushed himself off the wall to a stance. Also, you hesitated when I asked if you were ready. So? Is that why you had me turn off my communicator? Yes. When it comes to murder, if you hesitate a little at the idea, you'll hesitate a lot when it comes time to do it. Come on, we've spent enough time in here. William led Ryan up to the top story of the room, bypassing dozens of guard corpses sprawled throughout the walkway. William stood on a switch on one side of the double doors. Stand on the pressure plate over there. Can't open either side unless both guards are on their side of the door. Ryan did as asked. William put his arm on the ornate door handle and pulled the door open. They could hear moaning and wailing from the cavernous room within. They stepped off the button to lock the doors open. The two entered the room as the Shirazen guards. They perused the prisoners. 
There were a lot of prisoners in tattered clothes throughout the barred cells, but they didn't recognize any of the faces. These must be the older inmates, William said, looking about the room. Should we release them anyway? They might help us get out of here, have them start a riot or something. Once we get our people and prepare to make for the surface, William said. Communicators on. He tapped his ear and heard the connection to the Enigma network click to life. About time, Clara's voice reverberated in their ears. After scanning the sublevels of the city, your safest exit will literally be the Defringo. Of course, you'll have to traverse the streets of Lower Shirasa. We can dust off there, but only if you can hold off the guard until everyone's aboard. I thought you were joking when you proposed that yesterday. Is that feasible? William asked as the two started out of the chamber to the one across the hall. I don't know. How many guards do you think are in the city? Clara wondered. Quite a few. We'll keep you posted on where we are, but get inventive in case things go south. We're about to blow the cover. I may be able to help you once you get into the arena. I fit this bird through some pretty tight places, Clara said over the communicator. Whatever assistance you can give will be appreciated, William said. Let's do this. Ryan, let them all go. He jogged past one of the many giant bowls of fire to the control tower where a guard watched him approach curiously. William climbed the tower and kicked the guard out from the top. On the wall, there were a series of levers and one master lever with a lock on it. William broke the lock in his fist and pulled the lever. All the cell doors opened. People flooded from their confined rooms to the middle of the cavern where William and Ryan were making their way through. We're breaking out, Ryan yelled, first in English and then in Alondron. Follow us if you want to see the light of day again. Gather as many as you can, William called. He ran into the chamber they had left previously and released the older prisoners. At least a hundred people herded through the upper level toward the stairwell. William and Ryan pushed to the front of the crowd and broke free of the herd. They each rushed into the cell caverns and released the inmates on the next two levels. The cells below were crowded to capacity. Hundreds of ratty, smelly prisoners rioted into the hall. Some carried rocks, others carried broken swords they had found or salvaged. There were a few Enigma survivors, but most were on the bottom story. Once the two liberated the last two levels and the base corridor was flooded with offenders, innocent and guilty, William surveyed the crowd. Chance to rely in, he called. Here, a man yelled back, but with all the movement and haggard-looking men, it was hard to tell where he was. A moment later, Chance pushed his way through. His clothes had turned to rags, and his face looked ragged with facial hair. William hoisted the corpse of a dead guard into Chance's arms. Get changed. I need you to find out where they took the women and get them out. Already on it, Chance said over the dull roar of the prisoners. What the hell? One of two guards cried from the foot of the stairs at the end of the corridor. They were at least 200 yards away. Both turned to report the massive prison break, but Chance took William's pistol from the poorly hidden holster tucked between his guard uniform. He aimed, thumbed the hammer, and fired two bullets in quick succession. There were two blood sprays as the bodies of the two guards fell to their knees in the same timing that he had fired. Chance slipped William's gun back into its holster. Good going, Ryan said amidst the crowd of awe-stricken prisoners. Can't afford to get every guard in the city on us, Chance said. Do you have a way out? He directed his question to William. Claire's on pickup if we can get to the Defringo, William replied. That's a relief, said Chance as he began donning the garb of the guard. A few others saw this and did the same with the many bodies on the floors. Take this, William said to Chance, handing him a communicator. Chance slipped it over his ear before he put on his helmet, connecting with the Enigma network. What's up, Chance? Clara spoke casually in his ear over the full broadcast so that everyone could hear. Could do with a nice shower and shave, he smirked. 
Behind him, a look of jealousy filled Ryan's eyes. I'm going to need you to guide me to the docks, Clara, Chance said in a private channel so that only he and Clara could communicate. Hey, William smacked Ryan hard in the shoulder. Ryan had been glaring at Chance and eavesdropping on his and Clara's every word. Get your head out of the clouds. We need to get to the lower arena. I saw the door this way. The hundreds of people migrated toward the opposite end of the bottom floor. I'm out this way, guys, Chance said, pointing and walking toward the entrance to the guard tower behind them where he had shot the two guards. Good luck, Chance, William called. Let's do this, Ryan said. William took the lead and led them to the double doors where he and Ryan stood on either side to open the threshold. The prisoners flooded through, trampling guards as they entered the hall. Silence is broken. Do your thing, Clara, William said over the communicator. William and Ryan opened the next door and allowed the prisoners to rush the many guards of the lower arena preparation room. Everyone crowded and hurried up the ramp into the large lower arena. The people in the stands screamed and fled as guards jogged to other guards, spreading the information of their escape like wildfire through the social web of Shirasa. All 400 of the escapees congregated in the middle of the arena as dozens of guards began to file in from all four sides of the structure. The roar of some otherworldly vessel filled the entire city as Clara brought the falcon in through the east entrance to inner Shirasa. The sheer force of the thrusters overturned everything within the streets of the city funneling deep into the planet's surface. The inhabitants fled for safety. Clara brought the falcon over the lower arena and hovered there. Hey guys, too tight to set down here, but I brought you gifts, she said over the communicator. The weapons and loading docks on the freighter opened, releasing all the weaponry William had gathered and stored from over the last few months. Pistols, rifles, and carbines rained upon the prisoners. Hands reached to the air and caught the firearms. A hail of fire filled the different areas of the crowd as they mowed the guards down with the fire of earth. One man acquired a rocket launcher and blew a massive hole in the arena stands. Just as quickly as she had arrived, Clara returned from where she came. William and Ryan guided the prisoners through the hole in the stands into a lavishly decorated corridor that ran through the city. Lady Isbel and her husband Bethros were coming back from dinner in a close friend's abode. They had entered the royal corridor a few minutes prior. They passed through a door and heard and felt the sound of hundreds thundering through the corridors. Something was very wrong here. Bethros tried to turn back, but the closest door to the common streets was up ahead. It could be ten minutes of walking through the royal corridor back the way they came before they'd have another chance to get out. Isbel tried to make for the door, but a hundred ratty, half-naked men swarmed around the corner. Her eyes widened. Bethros managed to grab her hand, but she was taken. For an instant he watched the weight of hundreds break his wife's bones and trample her face before the crowd overtook him as well. Guards broke into the royal corridor, headed by Night Captain Jipper Guff. They marched forward as the prisoners burst through the door ahead and charged forward. They were like water, charged and driven by the impulse to move forward without direction. Guff saw men in guard uniforms moving with the herd. He didn't know if they were deserters, prisoners who had obtained the equipment from fallen guards, or guards who had gotten swept up and knew of no other way to get out. Fear crossed Guff's mind as the herd thickened. They had crammed fifty guards in here, thinking it would be enough. The sea of inmates poured through the corridor by the hundreds. Retreat! Guff roared. He managed six steps backward before the prisoners with rifles filled his back with bullets. The rest of his men didn't get close to the gate leading out either, but one guard managed to play dead in the corner by a set of steps leading up to the next part of the corridor. After the massive herd finally passed, Ricky got to his feet. He had a broken arm, a concussion, and a fractured shin. 
Hobbling as quickly as he could, he passed the crushed corpses of Isbel and Bethros and emerged from the royal corridor. A guard saw him and hurried to his side. What happened? the guard asked. Prison break! They're headed toward the Defringo, Ricky winced. Stay here. I'm going to go tell the rest of the guard. Hurry, damn it! Ricky shoved the guard away and collapsed on a bench by a nearby house beneath the torchlight. Unfortunately for the humans, the guard were quick to respond to the information that the horde of inmates was headed for the center of the city rather than the exits where they had anticipated and stationed guards. Now, as the information made its way through the ranks and platoons guarding the exits to Shrasa, hundreds of guards flocked toward the center of the Undercity. The guards in their red uniforms descended upon the circular Defringo-like blood cells attacking an infection. 9. William drove the prisoners toward the direction of the Defringo. When they passed through the massive set of columns and descended the steps onto the sands of the great arena, the bowl in the center erupted with flame. From every entrance that led to the field, guards in the red shreeze and uniforms advanced on them. Get us out of here, Clara, William yelled. I'm on my way, she replied. You guys didn't start the party without us, did you? Chance Trelion said over the network. As he spoke, at least 200 women and Chance Trelion entered the arena from the larder of the Defringo. They hurried together in a giant group with the other prisoners as the guards charged for them. The humans with weaponry formed a circle around the rest of the prisoners. Arrows filled the arena from all directions, taking down humans and guards alike. A massive strand of guards broke away from the front line to attack the women, thinking they would be easier targets. Chance plucked the rifle from the hands of someone who got hit by an arrow and took down eight guards before it went empty. He used the gun as a melee weapon on three more guards before it broke into pieces. William appeared at his side, slicing through guards left and right. As the soldiers replaced the defeated guards, more of the prisoners with weaponry moved in to protect the unarmed survivors. The first six waves of Cherizan guards went down with ease. Clara flew the falcon overhead and slowed to a stop. Arrows pelted the bottom of the vessel helplessly. She lowered nearer to the giant bowl of fire. When the back right thruster came close, it tipped the bowl over, sending fire rocks tumbling across the arena sands. She lowered the landing hatch. People by the dozens herded inside, Alondron prisoners as well as humans. Everyone able packed onto the ship some being taken by arrows before they could get aboard. The humans with weaponry had run out of ammunition. The guards swarmed them until they fell, ushering the army of Shirasa upon the humans and prisoners. William and Ryan were among the last of the survivors to board. The guards slowed the escaped inmates all the way up to the back door of the freighter. The only remaining prisoner was Chance Trelion. He had taken a sword and shield and would not stop fighting. Get out of here! Chance yelled to the communicator as he kicked and murdered guards until they backed away due to the rush of wind from the Falcon's thrusters. One of the guards took up the rocket launcher that one of the inmates had lost. He aimed it at the freighter and pulled the trigger before Chance could cut off his arm. Before Clara could get them away, the rocket connected with part of the back left thruster, jostling the ship. Clara and the other survivors left, disappearing into the Undercity to escape from where she had entered. The guards stopped fighting Chance and backed away from him as he fell to one knee. He took off his communicator and crushed it beneath his fist. The guards moved in, but they didn't kill him. They disarmed him and grabbed hold of his arms before leading him back to the prison. Jesus, Clara yelled, looking at the damaged sensors. The back left thruster was hanging by some wires and two support beams of twenty-four. They exited through the giant entrance to the undercity of Shirasa and rose above the line of trees to the north. 
It was nighttime, and the moons radiated an eerie pink glow over the landscape below. William and Ryan entered the cockpit behind her. Let's just get a safe distance away from the Alondrons and set down to see if we can repair the damage, William said. His face was covered with a grimy mixture of blood, sweat, and sand. Hundreds of people were crowded in the lounge of the freighter, 455 by the ship's body count, 236 women, and 219 men. There were 398 humans and 57 uncharted humanoid organisms aboard the ship. Do you think Chance made it? Ryan asked. I don't know, William said with his head down. Everyone on the ship but Clara looked just as filthy. After 20 minutes of flying as fast as comfortably possible, Clara slowed the ship. This is about as far out as I feel we can go without risking a major accident. She lowered the landing gear and descended upon a hill within a vast forest. She powered the freighter off and removed the communicator from her ear as she turned to face the crowd of survivors. Mission accomplished, everyone. We're looking at the last survivors of the Enigma. There's still people in Meacham, William said. We're stranded now, said Clara, on a continent of Alondrons who know who we are, what we look like, and that we're hurt. Meacham may as well be Earth for how accessible it is. What should we do? Ryan wondered. Bury the ship, said William. We'll form a town like you said, Clara. Pretend like we're Alondrons and don't draw attention to ourselves until their animosity blows over. Right, Clara said. We have to embrace what Chance kept telling everyone, that we can't stand out as separate from the Alondrons. Our survival scares them so much that they'll go to war in a heartbeat, or attempt to enslave us the way they do with any other opposing force. If we are to survive on Alondronon, we have to give up our humanity, and that includes the abilities we've learned to cope with as well. We'll have to adopt Alondron names, understand and recite Alondron holy religious scriptures, use Alondron building and economic techniques, the list goes on, William said. It won't be easy, but we have no other choice. We can't keep running. I believe there are six solid parts planned for the fall of the Enigma, and we just wrapped four. I can't remember if Slowfall gets wrapped up in the kidnap of Marissa Narciss, or if the last part got renamed to something else. We'll find out. I finished writing this book in 2014, almost ten years ago. If the story itself seems a little rocky, bear in mind that this was written during three tumultuous years in my mid-twenties, ending several months after I met my wife. I won't go into details, but this book was an outlet of sorts. Frankly, the idea of going back to a Alondronon after all that happened scared the hell out of me. But I've always been the kind of person who can look into the abyss and still find myself curious what monsters lay at the bottom. I hope you enjoyed this episode. See you next time. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was produced, directed, written, and voiced by Benjamin Allen. If you'd like to support our podcast, be sure to subscribe, leave a good review, like, or check out our donation page on the contacts page of our website. You can also purchase my books or audiobooks. Visit EK Publishing Media for more information. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media production 2021.